power on. I shut down Group 7 for a very good reason. Ed, all I'm saying is that if our own people can't get access to their programs, well, you know how frustrating it is when you're working on a piece of research. Walter, I sympathize, but I have data coming from the master control program telling me there's something screwy going on around here. That MCP, that's half our problem right there. The MCP is the most efficient way of handling what we do. I can't sit here and worry about every little user request that comes in. User requests are what computers are for. Doing our business is what computers are for. NCOM isn't the business you started in your garage anymore. We're building accounts in 30 different countries, new defense systems. We have one of the most sophisticated pieces of equipment in existence. Oh, I know all that. Sometimes I wish I were back in that garage. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! User requests are what computers are for, baby. And let me tell you what I'm for. I'm here for you. The Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, ready to bring you, well, quite frankly, what you are hearing between your ears. And that is the best in professional podcasting. And we have a hell of a show to get into, a lot to talk about, a lot of releases, a lot of, you know, actually, this is a rare episode where we're going to talk about a lot of products that are coming out. We're going to get into some other things too, especially a little bit later on. Actually, there's a couple documentaries I want to, I want to discuss uh, I mean, both very tech relevant, um, that we'll, 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 one of them will deep dive on another will certainly hint at, and I recommend that you, uh, that you check it out, but, uh, wow. Um, there's going to be a lot of Amazon conversation in this. I'll tell you that. And of all ironies, you can hear this podcast. It is one of the, uh, one of the, well, I mean, there, there are a lot of podcasts. Of course, there's a lot missing too. Uh, but one of the podcasts that was invited to be available on launch day with, uh, on Amazon music, uh, sovereign tech is that. So if that is something that you happen to use, of course, maybe by the time you get to the end of this episode, you're going to take your echo and I don't know, maybe you have a good sturdy wall nearby or perhaps a good pair of Fiskars. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> you might do something bad, <laughs> but <laughs> Hey, I'm just delivering the news, baby. Anyway, <laughs> so but to uh, talk about delivering the news, why don't we go ahead and get into it? Let's get into a bit of the foreplay here. Uh, and of course, that's where we talk about all the little stories uh, happening in the science and tech world. Uh, and there are plenty of them. It's always a challenge 
for me to decide, you know, okay, what I, as the pod God, what do I decide to talk about? What makes the cut? Because there is so much. Well, this is something that actually dropped uh, pretty recently, pretty fresh and speaks to many major conversations that we've had on the show uh, during the, during recent weeks. Uh, particularly, I think this is, but I think there's more to it, but I think this is a response to the, uh, now notorious, I mean, people have known about it for a long time, but now people are finally, you know, they've had a fucking enough, uh, the notorious, uh, you know, 30% Apple tax in the app store, right? Well, interestingly, we don't need to retread that ground. There's recent episodes that you can listen to where we cover all of that. We do a full breakdown of what it means, how there's a lot of apps like Telegram and so on. You want to join the Sovereign Tech Telegram group? I recommend that you do. Woo! Links in the show notes. But how there are a lot of apps that, frankly, I mean, it's not even just about an Apple tax. I mean, there's, you know, the, 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 the processes that apps have to go through just to get an update, even when it's something with millions you know, six digit numbers, million or or, well, seven digit, actually, I should say millions, uh, seven digit hell, nine digit, even numbers like telegram, what it takes to just push an update, get an update out in a timely fashion. It doesn't happen timely in the app store, Google play different story. But then that's really it here is that Google has come out with a different story. And it again, it's clearly a response to what's going on, particularly say with Epic and their, you know, Epic games and their battle with not like games that are Epic, you know, as in the company Epic games and their battle uh, with, with Apple, they're certainly leading the charge, but I've heard, you got to understand something. I mean, even like Coinbase has come out now and spoken out against Apple plenty. Of, I mean, I, I'm still amazed after the way that Apple treated blockchain, Bitcoin and blockchain apps overall, uh, over the, you know, especially in the the earlier years, I still can't believe people even bother to trust that fucking platform with that stuff, but they do, um, always, always control your keys folks. (laughs) That that is the name of the game that that goes far beyond Bitcoin and blockchain that goes with, you know, your messaging apps, the whole score, but regardless, all right. So Google has come out with a very interesting announcement that in Android 12, and there's a link in the show notes where you can read more details, but in Android 12, basically they are going to make it easier for you to install and use third-party app stores. Now, the ability to use third-party app stores, perhaps the, the most recommended on this show and arguably one of the most popular, that being F-Droid which is all open source apps, right? Um, you know, that's not anything new. That's been a part of Android for a long time. That's part of the, you know, where the, the, uh, the narrative that Google puts out there, that Android is an open ecosystem. It's kind of, it's really not, I mean, AOSP is, is more open, but like, you know, the stock Android that you get on the average phone that you buy today, not true. Okay. Like that's not that open of an ecosystem, but regardless, um, and we, and we got to talk about the reality around what Google's saying here, but let's, you know, again, this, this idea of having third-party app stores, not new, very, very commonplace, uh, especially around the world, more so than in the United States In the United States, it's not as big a thing, but in other countries like in China and elsewhere, 
um, or, you know, tyrannical countries. Of course, that's really an oxymoron. I mean, all countries are tyrannical, but regardless, in, in I guess, more egregious <laughs> countries, um, you know, they those countries will have their own app stores where they have absolute control over what apps, you know, say the citizen or will they attempt to have absolute more absolute control of what apps uh, the citizenry can have. And before you say, well, how dare you say the United States is tyrannical? TikTok, anyone? Moving on. Um, so Google it has come right out, made it very clear that they are going to make it a lot easier for, uh, for the, the ability to install third-party uh, app stores. Now, you used to be able to, I mean, again, this has always been possible. And basically, you have to, there's just a, a checkbox that you have to hit in the settings on Android um, where, you know, allow unknown application sources, right? And as soon as you hit that, even on stock Android, the device doesn't have to be rooted or anything. You can install like for a while or, well, I think Amazon might still have their, their own app store, but of course they had Amazon underground for a while that they, that they tried to work with. Um, again, there's F droid. Uh, there's, there's, there's quite a few different ones out there. Even humble bundle. Like they, they had kind of a separate app that lets you install, uh, you know, that lets you install games that you got through the humble bundles, which boy, when's the last time anybody's bought a humble bundle? <laughs> Come on guys. <laughs> I mean, I remember that used to be like, you know, weekly check-in. It's like, oh, what do they got? What do they got? And I mean, that just eventually you end up owning so much shit like that you could never touch. You finally say to yourself, I, I need five lifetimes to even be able to play everything I got on Humble Bundle, you know. <laughs> but anyway, whatever uh, that we're not here to knock that. I still think that they've done beautiful things in the world. And, and really, I mean, especially for education. But regardless, um, so third party app stores, again, not a new thing for, 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 uh, for Android, for iOS, practically unheard of, not impossible, got some jailbreaking involved, but unheard of basically with, with, with iOS. Um, now let, let me read a little bit about uh, the exact quote from Google on what they're doing here. So, so here it goes. Uh, this was in a blog post about uh, changes coming to Android 12. Uh, of course, Android 11 just came out in the past uh, couple of weeks or so. In fact, we're going to talk about well, we're going to get into some conversations around latest versions of Android here when we get to our main story uh, this week. So here it is. Uh, each store, this is directly from Google, each store is able to decide its own business model and consumer features. This openness means that if a developer and Google do not agree on business terms, the developer can still distribute on the Android platform. This is why Fortnite, for example, is available directly from Epic Store or from other app stores, including Samsung's Galaxy app store. Um, and they get, so, so basically they're, they're trying to create this more, the, more of this openness and obviously they want Android adoption right now. Some of the things they're not really hinting at because there is also a conversation, um, around billing. And I want to talk about that, but let me read a little bit more here from Google's blog post. Uh, so anyway, so he says that said, some developers have given us feedback on how we can make the user experience for installing another app store on their, dev their device even better. In response to that feedback, we will be making changes in Android 12 to make it even easier for people to use other app stores on their devices while being careful not to compromise the safety measures Android has in place. We are all design or we are designing all this now and look forward to sharing more in the future. Basically, they don't give us any details on, on how they're exactly doing this. Now, the billing thing. Again, everything going through Google's Play Store billing system. Uh, I'm sure that's probably what they're trying to figure out is how do we 
you know, as Google, how do you allow for third-party app stores, but then still allow Google to get some kind of cut of things? Now, does that defeat the purpose of having a separate app store? Uh, maybe not entirely. I, I don't know if they're going to be able to, to go with play protect or whatever. I mean, basically when you go to, you know, when you set up to allow for, uh, installation from unknown sources in Android, you're going to get a ton of ma messages saying, you know, oh, this is a huge security risk, blah, blah, blah. And obviously I think that's a good thing to let people know that that's what's going on. I mean, the more messages that people have to go through that genuinely have to do with security. And I think it's arguable that it does. Is it, you know, does, does Google really want to, have, I mean, Google would love to have the same dominant position, uh, that, that Apple has, you know, with the app store where, I mean, that's where Apple's making so much of its money. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, some of the billing language in some of these blog posts that Google has seems to make it clear. They are looking to find ways to make sure that, you know, all, all apps, all in-app purchases basically have to go through, have to go through Google. Now, maybe they won't be implementing that when it comes to play with, you know, comes into play with allowing for third-party app stores. Cause again, I could see where people would feel like, yeah, but that's, that's kind of pointless. I mean, having like a unified uh, payment processing system, right. There is a security advantage to that. Of course. I mean, that, that, that frankly, that there is a, there is a good argument that you could make for that. I'm not saying that I want it necessarily to be that way, but you know, there is a good argument for that. And Google's argument also is that the money they collect from the Google play, you know, from the Google play payment processing is money that goes back into basically developing Android, you know, and, and, and taking it to the next level. And, you know, there's something to be said, we we've got to with Android 11, and we're, this is going to play into when we get into our main story here. I don't think it's unfair to suggest that Android now, like there are no, and, and we've been, I've been saying this for a long time, like the, the new numbers and like the, the fresh coats of paint and all that stuff that get done with these annual releases of Android and really with any operating system, A, are largely to appease investors, to make it look like um, you know, that, 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 well, we're doing something right. We're, we're, we're changing the game. We're, you know, we're giving people new options, blah, blah, blah. Even when it, it's really not, it's not, you know, shifting deck chairs on the Titanic because Android's not sinking at all, but it is, you are just moving the furniture. You're not really bringing in a whole lot, you know, new for the consumer. However, it is accurate that for the developers, and this is really proving the point for developers there are a lot of new things, a lot of new possibilities and features coming into Android with every annual release. Now that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to me as a consumer either. And frankly, like even that, and, and me also as a developer, I don't really care, right? My number one concern, and this is a subject that's going to come up later in the episode as well. When we, when we get into HackSec and we talk about some of Amazon's releases, that, that they had during their fall hardware show. Um, all, all I'm really concerned about is security. Okay. Like that, that that's my number one, number one concern, but that's not just as a developer, I'm concerned about that, but also as a consumer, that should be your number one concern. And Google is admittedly taking strides as far as that goes. 
right? That, that it is becoming a more like every release, it is becoming more and more secure. And there's stuff that they're doing underneath, you know, to stop strand hog two strand strand hog 2.0. <laughs> I think I got that right. Uh, you know, and, and, and so on, and, and, you know, in successive releases, but it's interesting. I mean, Google basically doesn't do any advertising anymore around new Android releases. And I think it's because they know like they're, they're not going to reinvent the wheel with what they're doing with Android. Okay. They'll make things, you know, bet easier for developers. They'll make the possibilities for, you know, perhaps other people to get in on the platform, like with third-party app stores and whatever, uh, you know, they'll make all of that possible, but for the consumer, all the only change they're going to see is in what they can more or less like what options they have to do giving them, giving the consumer more options that that seems to be the direction that they're going. And that's not a bad direction, regardless of how I may feel about smartphones in general, <laughs> that's, which might not be positive. Uh, that's not a bad direction to go. And I could see a lot of people taking advantage of this. Like Microsoft could effectively create their entire own app store. And, you know, as it relates to their surface line within Android, like the surface duo and so on, not, not a bad move, I think, on Microsoft's part for them to do. Because they basically do have, I mean, they have a replacement for just about everything that Google puts on Android specifically. So if you could have a Microsoft App Store, in fact, a Microsoft App Store that takes advantage of, because, I mean, again, what are most people addressing? They're addressing Epic Games, right? And their battle with Apple? Well, Microsoft's got all the gaming prowess in the world. Hell, like we talked about in the last episode, they just bought Bethesda for some odd 8 billion. And so Microsoft would be wise to take advantage of this. Um, admittedly though, while all of that, I can certainly see, I mean, I do ultimately see this as a good thing, right? Um, I have pushed for a long time. In fact, there are people who are talking about speaking of blockchain projects. I'm not going to name its name because I don't believe in it and I don't care. Uh, but there, there was an app that I think got banned from the Google play store in the past week. That is a, a somewhat popular blockchain project within certain sectors of the blockchain space. I just don't care. Um, but you know, I have been espousing for a very long time. In fact, you can read, uh, I have an updated version coming out soon, but you can read, uh, my first version of the dark Android book, which is all about, you know, securing the Android platform and how people can do it. Uh, in there, I make the argument and that was from 2017 in that I specifically make the argument and I made it on the show years before that, even that we need to be able to install independent APK files, you know, and, and just not even be reliant upon app stores at all. Uh, I mean, and, and there are certain apps that take advantage of that, right? Like signal, you can install signal without an app store on Android, which I mean, you can go to their website and you can download the APK and away you go. That's great. So I'm all about getting past, you know, even app stores themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm there and I've been there. Okay. I've been, I've been arguing that for years, but the part where this could get a little ugly is that now Android will play a little nicer. Again, I mentioned earlier how you have certain countries that have like their own app stores that you're supposed to only use those app stores in those countries. And you're not even allowed to really have like, you know, a more traditional Google play store or whatever else. Um, this could make things in our present climate. I'll put it that way. I can see where making it easier to install third-party app stores or ultimately 
apps that exist outside of the Google Play Store. Um, I could see where governments would be able to take advantage of this. And I think I'll just put it that way. And that's the only negative or that that's the major negative that I see here. Otherwise, I think opening up the platforms to more app stores is only a good thing. Um, I mean, are we going to lose the abilities of Google play protect where, you know, the apps get constantly scanned? Yeah, maybe. But then if you have options, I mean, I, I got to tell you, if I had, if I was able to use Android, okay. And I could stay, I mean, all right, <laughs> here's a key point that also, you know, I've talked about for years is in, you know, my book and everything else, Look, the Google play store is ultimately a root kit. Okay. If we're going to talk about security, privacy and all that stuff, I mean, let's, let's, let's be frank about it. All right. It's a root kit. It's a problem in and of itself. Um, there's ways around this. Obviously you can install lineage OS, you know, replicant, whatever you want to, you know, how you want to go about that, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. Um, getting people you off of the Google play store, getting them off of the Google T is a great thing. Like would I, you know, with a smartphone where mainly, I mean, I only use my smartphone and I have an Android smartphone. I only use that basically for business. That's it. Okay. I have a completely separate device that I use for listening to audible, for listening to music, you know, rock and plex and all that other stuff. I do that on a completely separate device. Most of the time I can do it on my smartphone, but most of the time I like to do it there. If I could ignore the Google play store as much as possible, and you know, maybe Microsoft would come out with their own app store. That would be enough for me to get business done, right? As long as that, that app store had uh, Slack in it, which there's no reason not to, because Slack basically just runs in a, in a Chrome instance as an app. I mean, that that's really all it fucking is. Um, you know, and, and, and a couple other apps and, and that would be enough. And I wouldn't have to deal with the deluge of fucking apps in the Google play store. I mean that, you know, speaking of it that way, that may make Google think twice because if people are going to just deal in very specific app stores and they're not going to be dealing in the Google play store, uh, they could actually lose a huge cut of their revenue, right? Because I can install professional versions of, you know, office or what is now Microsoft 365 apps, whatever, blah, 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 you know, and just pay for it separately or get it paid for by the company I work with or whatever, you know, and that Google doesn't have to get a piece of that pie. So things are changing. I, I, this might be one of the biggest shifts in smartphones in a very, very long time. The idea that suddenly third-party app stores are going to actually mean something. And I think it has a lot more uh, possibilities and promise and ultimately will be taken advantage of outside of gaming, even though that seems to be the main driver here. Um, and so, well, anyway, it's something we'll be keeping an eye on. Um, let's move on from that. Let's get into another story here. So well, speaking of Microsoft, <laughs> uh, a couple of, uh, of, of interesting things. One is that we finally got an announcement. Both of this has to do with Microsoft edge. Um, we finally got the, the official announcement from, from Microsoft that they are going to, uh, have a preview, a uh, public preview available, basically a beta of Microsoft edge for Linux starting in October, 2020. So just next month, they're going to be putting that out there. There are going to be some features missing. 
uh, like I think sync with other devices is going to be missing. There are going to be a few other things that, that won't be there. Um, but it is finally coming. I know what most people say about this. Why, why would you want, uh, you know, edge? Why would you want to use a Microsoft product in and of itself, you know, on Linux? Well, I think that there's advantages to it. And part of it has to do with if, you know, especially like if you're freelancing now and if you're knee deep, much like how Google Chrome has features in it that favor Google products and to use some of them, you basically have to use Google Chrome. The same could be said for, you know, office and other Microsoft products within Microsoft edge. Um, and again, you know, we've talked about it. I mean, it's based on Chromium. It's, it's a solid fucking browser. It really is. I mean, as Craig, I liked it, you know, I, I was a, a bit of a fan of it from a security standpoint, even before it switched over to Chromium, but you know, now, now it is really a, it is a solid choice. And especially now, you know, there, there are great options on Linux, especially in the browser space that aren't available on any other platforms, which are very, very interesting. And we've had the browser conversation quite a bit lately because we raised the concerns around uh, Firefox because of the new Mozilla, as we call it. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to, you know, go with opera and you don't want all of your data, you know, getting schlepped off to the Chinese government or something. I understand that, uh, you know, whatever the reasons being there, I think there are arguments for using edge, using something that has such active development that isn't a roll of the dice. Like Firefox is now it's also not Google's Chrome, right? You're not handing everything over to Google. Uh, and Eventually when sync is available to have something on Linux, which is so cross-platform again, that also isn't necessarily opera. If you're concerned about that, I mean, interesting arguments could get made, but again, it is, it really is a rock solid browser and there's no reason for it not to be everywhere to be used. I mean, and you can't, again, Microsoft basically has to do this. If you want to be taken seriously as a browser, you have to be on every platform and Linux is I dare say, I mean, it, it's just, it's the operating system of the day. If you want to say you want to get fancy, it's up. It's the OS du jour, whether people realize it or not. And Microsoft's got to know that people like the usage numbers for windows are probably dropping pretty significantly. Um, you know, there's just, there, there are a lot, I mean, especially when it comes to government installs as well. Uh, we know, you know, like, like South Korea and others have been, for the past couple of years are all switching away ever since windows, windows seven was end of life. They're all switching away from, you know, from windows and they're, you know, they're switching over to Ubuntu or, you know, whichever Linux platform they want, they want to, or distro they want to rock with. And for Microsoft to want to be there, you know, because a lot of those places are still using office, right. And, you know, they could use office online or whatever. I mean, when it'll get really serious is when you get, you know, office on Linux. Is that going to happen? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so anyway, the other thing that I wanted to mention with edge, and, and I thought this was a nice move. They're coming out with a, a feature called sleeping tabs. This probably won't be in the Linux uh, preview build that you're going to get in October, but sleeping tabs. And, and this is pretty slick. So what it's going to do is it's going to lessen the Ram usage. Say you have a million tabs open. In fact, I'm looking at edge right now. And I have a million tabs open <laughs> uh, and we know how those tabs just chew at Ram processing, you know, just the resources in general 
to say nothing of what it does to your hard drive, right? Right. We've, we've warned about that before. And the problem is, is that now what some web browsers will do, in fact, Opera will do this, where it will, it'll kind of put the, the tab to sleep, same concept, but when you go back to it, it, it refreshes the tab. The problem there is, is that say, I don't know, you're shopping on Amazon or you're, or you're, I don't know, you're somewhere. You will often lose the place that you are at because it does a complete refresh of the tab while it had it basically in stasis. Edge is going to have it to where with sleeping tabs where, okay, fine. It will cut down on the Ram usage. Again, the battery life, it'll cut down on so many different things, but when you go, so it'll put the tab to sleep like other browsers do, but when you go back to it, it will keep your place where you were instead of it doing a complete refresh of the page. It's in fact, this is really where the word stasis should be used. It will basically put it in stasis, uh, like total stasis though, not just like, you know, have it ready, you know, and refresh the cache and everything. Uh, so th that's a very, very nice feature. I have to admit, um, how they're pulling that off. Of course, you know, they don't reveal all the technicals on this, but it's well done. And those are the kinds of features along with maybe vertical tabs. I mean, we could think of some other things where, you know what, I mean, your, your Linux user today might actually be interested in that. Wouldn't blame them. Uh, especially when, you know, we, a lot of us know a lot of us, you know, Linux diehards. Um, and yes, obviously I'm all about open source, but you know, we know what it's like when you install Ubuntu on a laptop that was clearly, uh, more optimized, shall we say, to work with Windows 10. And with Windows 10, you get great battery life. You throw on Ubuntu and suddenly that battery life gets cut in half. So anything that can help out with that, right on. So anyway, look for that in October. I will be testing it out and giving a review here, even in its preview stage, just to see what that's like. I'll admit it's going to be a little fucking weird, you know, to see that E, that classic or not so classic E, uh, you know, on, on my Linux machines that, that it is going to be odd, but I'll try it out. So you don't have to, and you can keep using brave browser or something. I, not, not look, not to get sidetracked because I gotten a lot of emails and messages from people saying, what about brave? Why don't you talk about brave? Blah, 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 blah. Look, um, the browser, your choice of browser in many ways, the argument could easily be made is more important than any platform or OS choice that you make in many ways. That browser has to be fucking secure. You understand not only totally secure. I mean, part of my concerns around Mozilla is that apparently they, I mean, it's not like it's anything new that they've had real money troubles, but they sort of haven't yet. They're claiming that they are. And like, there's a part of me, I feel like they're gambling and you know, I don't want to be in on a code on a code base that, that that's going to stop getting developed or that's going to tank and brave. I don't have the confidence that they're going to be here years from now. I mean, is somebody going to buy them up because they do have somewhat of a percentage, you know, somewhat of a market share with browsers. And so people would want to be in on that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, but again, that's a roller coaster. I don't want to ride. I want to rock with something that with a browser, that at the very least, you know, like I, I feel confident it's going to get regularly patched, regularly updated. There is plenty of, I mean, Hey, you know, I'm all about being in a world where the profit motive doesn't, you know, doesn't have to matter anymore, but I just, I'm not it. We're not in that world right now. And to engage the conventional internet. Okay. I need a browser that I know there's 
you know, a massive team of coders taking care of the business on it. You understand? And if anything, you, you've, you, you've got to realize that <laughs> Microsoft has a massive team making sure that, uh, you know, they're, they're not having to, to, to bail water out of the edge boat, you know, that they can plug those holes instantaneously. No need for a pail as to where a lot of other web browsers, I feel like that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're just, they're trying to shovel out the water as quickly as they can. That matters. That's why I really, it was a few episodes ago. I really appreciated the listener uh, email that came in asking, Hey, like for my kids, for, for their future, like what web browser should they be, should they be in on, you know, and anything can change at any time, but I certainly don't want to give any more of my data to Google than I have to. Um, if I were, if I was an Apple guy, it would be an absolute no brainer. I'd be rocking Safari. In fact, quite frankly, if Safari were available on, on a windows, like it used to be, or even on Linux, I would be very tempted to, to become, you know, a, a Safari user back when it was on windows, what did they do that up to like version five? Um, that, that was, that was my mainstay web browser. I, I loved that. I mean, scrolling through the bookmarks, like cover flow and iTunes alone was fucking great among other things. Okay. Like I, I would be there, but I can't stress the importance enough. There has to be a great development team behind a web browser that is ready to handle things instantaneously. And that's really, really key. Again, when you're engaging the conventional internet. Now, if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're doing things differently, okay. If you, if you're, you know, just can more concerned with local area network and local browsing and, you know, and you're communicating, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're wanting to be a bit more under the radar and everything, then you're already using tails anyway, right? You're, you're, you're doing something totally, totally different. But I'm talking about when you're engaging the conventional internet, you're connecting to a bank or you're connecting to whatever that you want a level of security, you know, that is, that, that is top tier. I don't trust Mozilla to bring that to the table. Okay. Uh, there, I don't trust brave to bring that to the table. So understand that that's where I'm coming from with this. Okay. So anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of security, privacy, things like that. Um, I mentioned a couple documentaries that I wanted to kind of discuss. I'm going to bring one up quick. It's linked to in the show notes. Every sovereign tech listener should watch this documentary. Every single one of you, it's about 90 minutes or so. Um, it, it's called the social dilemma. You might've seen, I mean, I've seen everybody from, from uh, Gina Carano to she's fantastic to, I mean, a whole slew of people, you know, sharing, sharing, Hey, watch this. Yes. Watch this. Um, this documentary is all about social media and the possibility that it is a net negative upon humanity at large. Of course, I agree with that. That's not a new position for sovereign tech. In fact, when I was watching it, I was like, wow, it's, it's like, in fact, I said this on, on of all ironies, I said this on my Twitter account, <laughs> but when I shared it on Twitter, of course, at sovereign tech, S O V R Y N. Um, I, I said, it was like, it's almost like they listened to 10 years of this show and then they just condensed it down to 90 minutes, you know, because so much of what they're bringing up. And I mean, there are some dynamite points that are made by fantastic developers, people who are, who were, or are, you know, knee deep in this space who worked for Facebook, who worked for Twitter, 
who work for whatever, you know, that are bringing it up and saying, Hey, what, you know, it's not just, uh, uh, as, as some people may say derogatorily, it's not just a bunch of activists or something, you know, coming out and screaming and hollering. It, it's, you know, people who were a part of the process who de- helped develop these things who are saying, yeah, we might not want to keep going down this road. You've got to watch this, the social dilemma, uh, just, just, just dynamite. And I mean, one of the best points, speaking of concerns around smartphones, it's an overall point that I, I feel like it was making and, and, and it can't get driven home enough is that, you know, you could argue that, uh, you know, the, the smartphone itself is, you know, kind of innocuous, not a big deal. Um, and that you have some control over it. Well, what ultimately controls the smartphone is a supercomputer off wherever. And you basically have a, you are every time you're engaging your smartphone, you are ultimately, you know, you are at odds. You are engaging a supercomputer. Not, not that the smartphone is a supercomputer. I've complained about that for a very long time. I hate it when people say that, Oh, we all have supercomputers in our pockets. No, no, no. But there is a supercomputer on the other side of that 4G, 5G connection. And you are constantly combating that supercomputer, you know, combating like protecting your attention, protecting your data, your privacy, all, all this. We don't think about it like that, but that's exactly what's going on. In fact, there was, oh man, one of the, one of the people on the, on the, um, on the documentary even brought up. It's like, you know, we, we, we think about AI all wrong. Like we're, we're looking for Skynet or something like that. No, maybe AI is actually already, you know, already here. And it's so ubiquitous. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, that, that, that's a point that I've hinted at many times on the show. I mean, there's just, anyway, you've got to watch it. I know I'm just teasing it, but check it out. Maybe I'll do a full review on it. Um, but really I wouldn't be saying anything new that hasn't already been, you know, explored and talked about on this show. Um, including they, they even did the, the classic hearing with that Senator where the Senator, this was just a couple of years ago where the Senator said, um, I am glad that I will be dead before all this shit. And he actually said, shit, all this shit comes to fruition, you know, that was getting laid out about what social media is doing, you know, to people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, and, and they, I mean, there's so much statistics and everything. You've got to watch this documentary. So anyway, while I was just talking or, you know, while we're just hinting at smartphones and getting notifications and everything, let's get into our main story because I want to talk about both in a review of a couple products. I know you didn't see that coming, but it's coming. I'll be right back with more Sovereignty. Hey. Is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside, and not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. 
Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. Let the man of tomorrow tell you about a smartphone you probably won't be putting a third-party app store on, <laughs> even though it might do well to have it. Um, I have a couple of reviews I want to get into. Uh, these are update reviews in many ways. In fact, the smartphone I am about to review and talk about here for the main story is the Nokia 1.3. This is in many ways a sequel phone. This is new. This is a 2020 phone. Okay. Understand this. This isn't even but a few months old. Granted in the smartphone space that might as well have come out 10 years ago, I guess, but this is fresh. A few years ago, a couple years ago, back when Android eight, you know, before Pi even right back when Oreo <laughs> was the thing, um, Google started a initiative called Android go. And this is Android go is a version of Android designed to run on devices that only, I think initially it was supposed to be this, the initial specs allowed for was it could have 512 megabytes, not gig megabytes of Ram. And uh, I think eight gig of onboard storage, I think was maybe the, the criteria that a phone had to have to have Android go on it. And obviously this was designed to, you know, getting, get into, uh, as they get commonly called developing markets. Right. Um, and the first phone to get released in America, the, in, in the United States, that was an Android go phone was the note at the time was the Nokia two. Now there have been further, phones in the Nokia two line, the two one, the 2.3 and so on. And those have all kind of gotten out of, they're still budget phones, but they've gotten out of the Android go uh, ecosystem as it were. Uh, and I reviewed, I tried the Nokia two. Um, I was very intrigued by it. We did a full review of Android go at that stage. Again, this is a probably about, this is in like 2018 that we did that. Um, so we're two years down the line and I think it's time to do a refresh and see where is Android go? Where has it gone? How about that? With, you know, it, a flagship phone <laughs> in the Android go, uh, uh, line and the Nokia one three is certainly that, um, so to talk about the Nokia one three from a hardware perspective. So I think Android go, and I want to say it was when it got to Android nine or, you know, for, for Android go, because it has been continually developed all the way up to Android 10 go is the latest, but the Nokia one three in its part of its marketing is that it is ready for Android 11 go. And in fact, it's supposed to get updates into, uh, I think all the way up to Android 12 at least. And again, it is, there must be an Android 12 go now granted that can change at any time, right? 
Google can come out and say, all right, we're not doing Android go anymore, you know, and then it's not really Nokia's fault, even though Nokia is when you buy, uh, like, I mean, cause this is kind of like the Android one program, right? Where you're supposed to get two years of operating system updates and then three to four years of security patches, you know, still, um, which is a great thing. I I've applauded that many times. Um, and applauded that's part of the developments where it's more about the developers, right? Where Android has decoupled the security patches largely from the operating system updates. That's a fine and good, you know, fine and dandy good thing. Okay. Because like I said, that's the most important thing to me anyway. You know, the, the number of the operating system doesn't mean jack shit. And like I said earlier, I think we're really entering a time where only the diehards, only the people who are really into the pixel line and whatever else are actually going to care. And developers are going to, you know, those are the only people that are going to care about what the version number is, um, you know, of Android. And as long as security patches keep on rolling in, that's okay with me too. But regardless, um, so I have tried this, this phone runs for a hundred dollars. Um, you can get it for less. You could probably get it, you know, for like 60, if you know what you're doing, uh, or you could get like a refurb for around that price. And I'm a big fan of, you know, buying refurbed uh, devices. Certainly, uh, comes in a, a couple colors, I think black and, and shy cyan or whatever, however you pronounce that, that, that color is blue. <laughs> it's like a turquoise, uh, 5.7 inch screen. Um, frankly, one of the things I liked about the original Android go phones is that they were all sub five inch screens. Uh, I like my phones very small. Um, this is not a small phone. In fact, it's well, ironically, so it has a notch, right? Um, so my other mainstay phone, which is the Moto X four, um, that they're, they're actually the same size, even though it has some, uh, you know, the screen is technically larger. All of that is due to the fact that it has a notch as to where the X4 has a full bezel. I'll take the full bezel any day. As we talk about many times, the new smartphones, I don't know who's asking for, Hey, could you please get rid of the bezels? They're annoying the fuck out of me. I have no idea who says that. And I've tried to find people who, who think that way. Nobody thinks that way. And me, I mean, I, I keep hitting the wrong stuff, but then I have these stupidly large hands that, Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm the problem, right? Replace the user. God damn it. I need to have tiny hands. That's no comment. Uh, okay. Moving on. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it came with Android 10 go, like I said, uh, it has a uh, micro SD card capabilities, which means, and it can use up to a 400 gigabyte, not a 512. It can use up to a 400 gigabyte. Um, I did test it out with a 256 gig, uh, micro SD card in it. Of course that, that worked perfectly well. Um, it has Bluetooth 4.2, which of course we haven't gotten into it on, on this show. I don't know if we will. Steve Gibson on security now has done such great breakdowns around the issues surrounding, uh, Bluetooth and security as late, um, you know, of course getting patched with Bluetooth 5.1, but there's a lot of Bluetooth devices going backwards where they're never going to end up getting patched. Um, regardless, Bluetooth might not be the biggest deal with this because, um, it does have a 3.5, you know, it has a, a one eighth jack. It has a headphone jack on it. Okay. Um, Qualcomm 215 mobile chipset. Yeah, that's not gonna really, you know, win any uh win any races, certainly. Uh removable battery. I was impressed by that, but 
not too impressed. And I'll tell you why. Cause you know, actually with dark Android, I mentioned that earlier. So I used to have, and now, I mean, basically just give up the fight on these things. Uh, and you know, I, I could have during the four, during the foreplay, I could have talked about a lot of what's going on with, um, like with the pine phone, some very interesting things, you know, a lot of the OS is getting developed for that are starting to get really interesting. The pine phone in general is starting to get very interesting. That's a nice alternative. Anyway, with dark Android, I used to have like, you know, certain criteria, meaning you don't want to buy a phone that has any kind of biometric features. Um, you don't want it to even have a fingerprint reader. That's more or less unavoidable today, though. This does, this is missing a fingerprint reader. You want it to have a removable battery for reasons. Let's just say more paranoid uh, security reasons. But as we always say, and I didn't even originate this statement, only the paranoid survive. Anyway, reading on or continuing on with uh, with a bit of the review here. Um, but it does have a removable battery. However, good fucking luck removing the battery from this thing. Taking, yeah, it's funny, you know, the more supposedly advanced that the world gets. Uh, in fact, you know, that was a great comment too from that documentary, The Social Dilemma. The idea that we live in a simultaneous utopia, but that's also a dystopia. Of course, I would say, you know, if, if you have dystopian elements, you fucking live in a dystopia. Don't believe we live in a dystopia? Just wait till we get to HackSec. Continuing. But it was an interesting point that he brought up. He's like, it looks like, it feels like utopia, like it's supposed to be utopia, but it's a dystopia because of maybe who's holding the keys. But anyway, um, it's funny, no matter how much more advanced the world seems to get, it seems like the more and more I end up pulling out my Swiss army knife, my nice tinker model. I, I keep pulling the, the more advanced shit gets, the more I end up pulling that thing out. Isn't that the weirdest thing? And it's not like the tinker model tinkerer model has changed in the past 50 years. Strange world. Anyway, I have to pull that out to take this, the fucking back off of this thing. There's not even like a little notch. I mean, there's a notch on the screen, but there's not a notch on the back panel to where you can pop it off to remove that battery. So good luck without some kind of tool. Good luck removing the back panel on this. So it having a removable battery, that's great because that's a long lost feature. It seems like with modern smartphones, but also it's kind of pointless if you can't take the back off. <laughs> so screw that. I, I mean, you can give it a point for it, but you might as well take the point off. Um, eight megapixel rear camera with low light imaging enhancement, right? Uses HDR and all that. The camera's not that great. I see that as a feature, not a bug. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, you might feel differently about it. Um, it does have 16 gigs of, of onboard storage. That is the absolute bare minimum to be able to get things done with a smartphone, right? If you want to, I mean, don't even dream of really even installing signal on this thing, right? Because, Signal, you share enough pictures with people, which I would argue might be part of the joy of using Signal, uh, you know, sending some sexy time to sexy people. I don't know, but you're going to fill up that space in no time. Uh, so and you can't, as far as I know, you can't store like Signal backup data onto onto a micro SD card. Now, I mean, if you put Audible on this or if you put um I don't know, even Plex or, you know, a lot of, a lot of different, or like Kindle, you know, a lot of different apps. You can set all of those to download to the, the micro SD card, which is great, but there are still plenty of apps where that's not possible. And so, you know, that, that, that makes it kind of pointless, but you could pop telegram on here and, you know, it would work great for that. Certainly. Um, it does only have one gigabyte of Ram. That is ultimately where it continues and where the Android go platform overall continues to fail. If this had two gig of Ram, it would run fine. 
It would really run fine right now. It is a very, I mean, let, let's just, so we got the bulk of the specs out of the way that matter. There's no NFC on it, by the way, it is not USB-C. It uses micro USB. Um, so you run into issues unless you're going to use a, a Bluetooth like Titan key, you run into issues around two factor authentication with the UB key potentially, because you can't connect with USB-C and there, again, there's no, uh, there's no NFC. So that's an issue. If you wanted your phone to be part of the Google advanced protection program, um, so consider that, okay? And of course, I recommend everybody have that set up if you do have an Android phone. Uh, even though the advanced protection program, a lot of the new features involved with it are more getting laid out within uh, the Chrome browser, the desktop version. So, and that's disappointing. But anyway, I mean, that, that it's a good thing overall, but whatever, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Android Go as it pertains to version 10. Um, so this is a, this is a slow phone. I would say overall, it's actually pretty usable, um, for, you know, even tasks a little more than basic. I wouldn't play a single goddamn game on it. I wouldn't even dream of doing that. Forget it. Um, so it's still, while Android 10 go seems to run fairly smoother than Android go Oreo, right? Android eight go. And things seem to, as long as you're only doing like one thing at a time, you can really, you know, you can get a lot of things done. I'll give it that. So it has matured in that way, even with still only one gig of Ram. One of the issues with the Nokia two, uh, was that it only had eight gig of onboard storage. That was, even though it had a micro SD card slot, that was just completely unacceptable. And you can't do, you can't join the storage like your micro SD because Android allows you to do this where you can have it. You can have shared memory between the micro SD card and the onboard storage, but that is painfully slow and even worse when you're only dealing with a gig of Ram, which is also what the Nokia two had. Um, so this Android 10 go clearly makes better use of the, the, you know, the only one gig of Ram. If it had two gig of Ram, I feel like this, this would really cook for Android go. Now, something we've talked about, as I've done more analysis, uh, again, you're talking to the guy who's literally written the book on security for Android. As I've done more analysis on, on Android Go, it is, as an install, it is about half the size. Like Android 10 Go is literally half the size as, as far as install. It's four gigabytes as Android 10 full on, which runs at about eight to nine gigabytes, depending. Now, for years, I've said, for the past couple of years since Android Go became a thing, one of my concerns wasn't about Android Go. It was about full-fledged Android. My concern was, what the fuck is in, like, I, at the time, especially with Oreo, between, like, the difference between Android Go, Oreo, and even full-on Android 9 at the time, there was nothing that I could see that, you know, that, 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 Go couldn't do that the full-fledged version of Android could do. And so I was really, really suspicious around what's this extra four gig of Android fucking doing this whole time. If Android Go can do everything it can do, but be so much lighter weight. I mean, this is a very real concern for me. And I was, I was really wondering like, what are all the background processes going on here? This is, this is a fucking problem. This is secure, you know, for, for the user, 
this is a potential like privacy security nightmare. However, with Android 10, and I don't know when this exactly changed. Okay. Now grant you at the time when I was using Android uh, go Oreo again in 20, 2018, I was not really a Plex user at that point. That was right around when I started switching up to Plex. Uh, I can't get, and I, and I have some suspicions as to what's going on here and it's not like anything nefarious, but with Android 10 go, I can't get Plex to connect whenever I'm not on my home network that that Plex install is also on or that the Plex server is on, I should say. And I mean, I can imagine what's happening there, but no matter what I do in the settings, I can't get that to work. And there's not enough of a user base, a technical, should I say user base of Android go devices, I think to, to come up with the answer. And I mean, I'll just say, I don't have the time to look into it to see what's going on there and why that's happening. Um, I opened up a ticket with Plex to see if they could, you know, figure it out what the, what the score is. Uh, but I mean, let's just be clear here. The average person that the Android go devices are being, you know, marketed to also is probably not running a Plex server or doing a whole lot on their local network. Right. And I get that. And I understand, even though I think there's a great argument that, you know, I mean, having an Android go phone sort of forces you to do less with your phone. And I think that's ultimately a good thing, right? I mean, it's, it's almost a bit of uh, of like self-inflicted behavioral control on your part to where, okay, I'm going to rely less on my smartphone because the goddamn thing can't do much. And I'd say that, I mean, that that's a win in my opinion, right? You get your attention back and your concentration. Um, so there's that problem. The other interesting thing, and this leads to the next device that I want to review for, uh, for the main story here. Um, I have a, the, the latest, uh, Xiaomi Mi Band 5 right? This is, you know, your, your, your fitness trackers and so on. And the fitness tracker just will like, it won't communicate with, even though it's Bluetooth 4.2, like there's no problem with any of that. Uh, I'm guessing there's something within Android go where it has very limited Bluetooth functionality. In fact, it makes me wonder, even if you had a Titan key to do, you know, hardware two FA with an Android go device that it wouldn't let you. Like it just wouldn't connect. And that may be the only thing that it can look for. Cause it, it will connect to Bluetooth headphones and a Bluetooth speaker. It will do that, but it won't, but it seems very limited in what Google allows an Android go device to connect to as far as Bluetooth. So you run into that problem um, as well. And you know, that probably comes down to actually a lot of my concerns of what that extra four gig of Android in the full fledged version is doing where it is processing and collecting a lot of that extraneous, you know, a lot of that Bluetooth metadata, even if it's Bluetooth metadata, that's supposed to be communicating ultimately with like, say the, the me, uh, you know, the me fit app, right. Which connects to the me band five. Uh, Google's probably taken a piece of that pie. And, you know, before you say, it's like, well, why, why would they do that? Why would they bother? Well, let me assure you also that iOS, which I've also connected the Mi Band 5 to, uh, does absolutely do that where it asks you, it's like, you're going to connect this to Apple health. You're, you know, this data is going to get collected here and, and so on. So of course they want to do that. 
And that, I mean, you know, we can raise privacy concerns around that, that Google's collecting all this data around devices that you didn't even think would necessarily matter or wouldn't have been attributed or, you know, wouldn't have important information for Google. No, no, no. To Google, all information is important. All of it creates a better, better picture of you. And thus they can, of course, sell that to advertisers. But regardless, um, so yeah, you're very, very, there, there are limitations and I can't say whether or not all of this would have been true with, with Android, uh, with Android go eight, you know, with Android go Oreo at the time, I'm going to guess part of the reason that Android go Oreo was so rough on the Ram and like in ran so slow is because some of those features like, you know, varying uh, Bluetooth connectivity and as, as well as, you know, network connectivity, like say with like a Plex app or something was still available. And by knocking a lot of that out, that's part of what's made Android run so smoothly on such low RAM now. So Android 10 Go, in the end, is an improvement. But you definitely now see the limitations between it and, you know, and ultimately, uh, you know, with a full-fledged Android. Like, the, the, there are differences now. It's abundantly clear. Um but if those differences don't mean anything to you, and please, I fully support you never wearing a fitness tracker. I fully support you not dealing with Bluetooth devices really at all. Um, I mean, not having a 2FA kind of sucks. Uh, but overall, this is, and, and if you don't use Plex, I mean, you, you can use other, like you can use Pandora, it works fine. You can use, you know, other music streaming services like Spotify or whatever, and all that works fine. Um, but if, you know, so if the two things that I, or at least the two things that I brought up aren't an issue, uh, this phone actually works pretty well. Like, I mean, you can only do one thing at a time, but like I said, I don't see that as a bad thing. So you could rock that, but now let's move on to, to the next. So has Android go improved? Yes. I would argue that it absolutely has, but then also, uh, you clearly see its limitations now. So would I recommend an Android go phone? No, not really. Not when, I mean, for you know, this, like I said, the one, the Nokia one, three, this goes for, um, this goes for a hundred bucks, spend 20 more dollars and you could get a phone that blows this away, runs full fledged Android might even be rocking Android 10 at that, which you do want the latest. I mean, there's an argument to be made because, you know, with this getting with the one, three getting, you know, a guaranteed update to Android 11, that's great. Get those security updates and all that. I mean, that that's all fucking wonderful. But again, for about 20 bucks more, you could get a different Nokia that is also going to get those updates and is just wildly, you know, just much faster, would let you use, you know, more of these Bluetooth devices, would let you, you know, you wouldn't run into that Plex issue and so on. So it's hard to recommend that, that people go with this unless you really are trying to just have that bare minimum phone, you know, that can run the, the odd Android app that you happen to need, right? It's certainly good for that. Now let's talk about the, the Xiaomi Mi Band 5. So I have been using the Xiaomi Mi Band off and on ever since version three. These are, as I've said many times, fitness trackers are bullshit. They're, they're absolute bullshit. All right. Like they, they can't first, cause again, I'm a very fit guy. Okay. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, I know how much time I spend in the gym every single week, practically every single day. I, I know my fitness tracker doesn't know why, because 
It doesn't know how to track you lifting weights. It knows how to track you if you're running. It knows how to track you if you're doing X, Y, Z. And even that has varying degrees of efficacy, but it doesn't, you know, there's only certain workouts that it's actually good for. And there are workouts that either a, I have no interest in, or I do incredibly rarely, or B, I think are downright harmful or not conducive to, you know, ones, if your purpose in being healthy is longevity or, you know, whatever, they're, they're, they're just not a part of the program in my opinion. So this device, why do I wear one? Why do I even bother with these damn things? If that's the case, uh, the sleep tracking, you know, people always bring that up while the Mi band five is certainly another incremental update. And we'll talk a little bit about specifics here, um, in a minute. Sleep tracking, as we've said, and and there's been plenty of research on this to to prove the point. While it seems to be a bit more accurate at what it does, uh, sleep tracking in general on these fitness trackers are is also horseshit. I mean, it, like most of these fitness trackers can't tell if you're you know dancing at the club or sleeping or what. I mean, like they, they just they don't know, you know. Um, but it does seem to be slightly more accurate. It's kind of a gauge. I wouldn't bet my life on it, but it's interesting. And I kind of wanted to see how that worked. What stories did it tell? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, it's basically saying I'm not getting good sleep at all, which of course I know is true because I work way too goddamn much. (laughs) I'm not going to say I fuck too much, but I certainly do that plenty. But (laughs) Uh, and, and you can't track that well either, man. And that's one of the healthiest things you can do in your life. Of course, we've talked about that in many episodes, uh, especially when we've had Ellen on, but anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I want to see that. And yeah, it's, it's a little more interesting, I guess, in what that says. And, and the app, the me, the me fit app certainly tells interesting metrics now, and they try to gamify these things. Like now they have this, this P P A I score, I don't even know what that means. I'm not even going to bother to try to pretend to, to know what it means because the ultimate point, the reason that I am intrigued by a fitness tracker at all is for one reason and one reason only notifications. That's it. And you know, it doubles as a watch. That's nice. But I mean, I, I you know, I have, I have fairly functionally nice watches. Um, I mean, I have an S force watch. That's not really functional. That's about the size of it. Uh, Cause it's a massive fucking watch. Um, I have that, you know, I have a, I have a, you know, whatever G-Shock Casio I happen to, you know, to have at the time right now, I'm rocking a Pro Trek. Uh, that's probably the best watch on the market. So, you know, I don't need to wear a watch, but I mean, it, you know, it certainly does take the place of that. And, and, and that's nice um, that it has that functionality as well as, you know, the, the Mi Fit app will feed it weather data based upon the source that's on your, uh, you know, device on your smartphone or whatever. Um, that's handy too. I like having access to that. Uh, also it can control, and this has been true since the Mi Band 4. It didn't exist in the Mi Band 3, but I thought it was a welcome addition with the Mi Band 4. It can control, um, you know, whatever audio is playing on your smartphone. Uh, on the Mi Band 4, that was a bit of a failure. It is now vastly improved on the Mi Band 5. I thought it worked fine on the Mi Band 4, but then, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal to me. Again, it all came down to notifications. We're going to talk about that in a second here. But one of the UI changes with the Mi Band 5 is that now you can set up shortcuts where when you're on the, what you could call the main screen, and it's just a little one inch screen, it's a little bit bigger than the Mi Band 4. It has like another 0.2 inches, I think, on it than the Mi Band 4 had. 
the colors are a little richer, blah, blah, blah. And you get a bunch of different watch faces that you can put onto it. If you have any kind of smart watch, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you have a fitness tracker with a color screen, I'm sure you deal with the same thing, whether it's Fitbit or, or whatever company. Um, the, the music controls or audio controls, because it works with Audible and podcast apps and everything. Uh, so now you can set up shortcuts on this to where when you're on the main screen on it, you can actually swipe left or right and bring up whatever functionality that the fitness tracker has uh, quickly. And I like that because with the Mi Band 4, while the music controls worked, you had to flip through, you know, you could never really bring it uh, to, to uh, an easy point of access. And so it kind of defeated the purpose of having, of having the music controls. Now the Mi Band 5 still buries some features uh, way too deep in like the more section when you're flipping up through, I mean, like there's status, there's a bunch of different stuff that you can access and they've added in some new features. Like they have a, a stress tracker on it now, which I don't know. And they don't tell you what it's using for those metrics. I mean, certainly heart rate monitoring, which has been improved and is, you know, still a feature on this course that I turn off, but I, I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I mean, the, the stress number that it kept giving me does between like basically zero and a hundred. And if you're close to a hundred, you should be dead. I'd get like around, I don't know, 82. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I guess I got to stop drinking coffee. But again, I have no idea how it tracks that. And it really, it's another thing that just seems to roll the fucking dice. So I don't know how much I would count on that to register whether or not, you know, you're actually stressed out. As I've said many times, listen to your own fucking body. I can listen to mine. I know when I'm stressed out, believe me, I feel it. Uh, as should anybody, if they're, if they know how to pay attention to their body, you should not need a fitness tracker to tell you these things, but regardless it's there. I think it's bullshit anyway. So the music feature, a it's faster. So the Bluetooth communication, obviously it, it you know, it's gone up a couple points in the Bluetooth versioning numbers. And so the control is much more precise and faster. It has, you know, going back and forth between tracks, controlling volume, all very nice little features. And again, you can quickly access it just by swiping, uh, swiping, you know, left or right from the main watch screen, which is what happens whenever you press the little capacitive button on it, uh, you know, on the device. And I thought that that was really like that. That was one added feature that was incredibly welcome getting that quick access to music controls. That way I'm not pulling out the smartphone and that's really what this is all about. Okay. And it's also nice because I can also just swipe to the left and, you know, or swipe another direction or so many times and I can quickly see the weather. I love that. I've said this many, many times. The only smart, the only feature I want in a traditional watch or a conventional watch that is a mainstay in smartwatches is the weather. I just want to know the weather. Fortunately, my, uh, my Casio, my G-Shock, the, the ProTrack, that actually has, and I have particularly, it's the uh, PRW3510Y. That can actually tell the temperature. That has a thermometer on it. So I don't really need a smartwatch to do that. So again, all of this comes down to, well, the music controls are nice, but ultimately it comes down to getting notifications. Uh, and it's getting notifications without having to turn on your smartphone screen, without having to look at your computer. And that's really all that I wanted. Now, your average fitness tracker costs in the, you know, $80 to, depending upon your Apple watch, $800, I don't know. <laughs> it just it gets to insane numbers. Uh, price range. The real winner 
with the, the Xiaomi Mi Band series has always been that you can buy these things for $30. That's all that they cost. And at that price, you know, at $30, it be, it's one of those deals where it's the no-brainer, right? Like, even if you find you didn't like the damn thing, what the hell? It was 30 bucks, <laughs> you know? And for $30, it's remarkable just how damn good this thing is and how useful it is, even just for music controls, telling the weather, getting those and getting those notifications. Just, I mean, you don't even have to care about any of the, the, the fitness features. They don't have to matter because for 30 bucks, this does a, a tremendous job. Has a nice silicone band that doesn't make me itch too much, uh, if ever. Um, that's nice. It is waterproof or largely waterproof. I think it's IP, I want to say it's IPX67, might be 68. Anyway, that's good enough. You can shower with it, swim with it. It does the job. Um, in fact, it has swimming tracking now. I have no idea how well that works, but it's there. Um, anyway, with the notification. So here's the deal. Yeah, I can't stand looking at screens anymore. I have to, <laughs> but I'm done. <laughs> you know, like, if I got to the point, in fact, I've said this, my measurement of success, I think real success in the modern world is can you, or can you not be permanently AFK? Can you permanently be away from keyboard, whether that's a touchscreen keyboard or a physical keyboard, doesn't matter. Can you be away from the keyboard? If you can be permanently AFK, you have one in the modern world. And note that has nothing to do with money. Money can certainly help, but it has nothing to do with money. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't want to look at my smartphone screen. I don't, I, watch the social dilemma. You'll never want to look at your, your smartphone screen again either, but that's not anything new for me. I've been saying that for years. Uh, I don't even necessarily want to look at my computer screen anymore unless I'm writing, you know, that that's a different thing. But even that I've gone to Moleskines in many ways. Uh, <laughs> no, really I have. Um, so I love having a device where I can just get notifications. I mean, my dream kind of my quasi dream world would be that I would have, and I'll just use this as an example because I'm not saying having an Apple product is a great thing, but I would like have my, my iPod touch, you know, no, no cell phone signal folks. I'd have my, my iPod touch with, uh, and I have one of these, it's a little uh, lightning connected uh, adapter that allows you to plug in a USB device, ethernet, and of course, uh, you know, lightning power. And I would have that on a little stand upstairs <laughs> in the house connected to ethernet, you know, I mean the whole thing. And I would basically, you know, I'd be able to receive notifications from the device and maybe it'd tell me that something was happening on telegram, which is basically the only place, you know, or threema perhaps, which are the only places that I, or maybe like a specific email address. And those are the only places where I care, where it matters, where it might be important in that moment to respond see those. Yeah. Maybe control audible from a distance or something like that, whatever. I mean, granted that would require Bluetooth headphones or something along those lines that gets into another conversation. But bottom line being is that I would not have to look at a screen, but I could still, you know, interact with the people that matter to me that are far away, or I could interact with sovereign tech listeners if I felt it important. And if I need to fine, I can go to the device. Hell, I don't even have to pop open a, you know, a computer. I could just have this little, you know, four inch screen and, you know, start typing away with a USB connected keyboard, start typing away an email or a response on Telegram, boom, done, you know, and walk away. And when an important notification comes, there it is on my Mi Band 5, right? Now, privacy concerns around, around the Mi Band. 
you can get apps. In fact, in the F-Droid third-party app store that we were talking about earlier, you can get independent apps that function with the Mi Band 5 that might not give you all the nice, nice features that come along with the Mi Fitness app, but will do certainly most of what I've described that this can do. Um, and you could run it with that. You know, if you're concerned about Google or uh, Xiaomi collecting such and so much data about you through your Mi Band 5, you can control that. Okay, so apps exist, independent apps exist that allow you to still use this as a notification device or whatever else. Um, but not, you know, if you're concerned about that data going somewhere you don't want it to, you can resolve that issue. So it's a really, really great option as far as that goes. And that comes from the popularity around it. And that popularity is, is possible because of just that ridiculously low price point. Um, is it a dramatic improvement over the Mi Band 3 and 4? Not dramatic, but the ability to quickly swipe instantly to the music controls, as well as the weather, as well as notifications and so on. Uh, those are winning features. Um, the battery life, this thing easily lasted me two weeks and that's with all the features on from heart rate tracking, sleep tracking, all the tracking, like, and, and cause I was testing it out to see. And also I wanted to, I got to a point where I want, I mean, initially I ran it without all that, but then I wanted to say, all right, let's charge it. Um, Oh, another nice thing is that now you can charge it without taking, you know, without taking it out of the band, which used to be a pain in the ass to take the little capsule, which is really all the device is taking that out of the band, having to stretch the band open and everything to, to, to plug it into a weird, it's still a proprietary plugin. It doesn't use USB-C or anything like that, unfortunately, but, um, but you can charge it without taking it off the band. I think that's, that's really cool. Or that that's a nice little improvement as well for the five. Um, but I wanted to drain the battery because here's one of the biggest problems with this device. And this is true for most fitness trackers. You can't turn them off. You can reboot them, but you can't turn them off. So I wanted to drain the battery as quickly as I could. And so, you know, I just turned all the settings, everything on, turned it up to high and it still went, I, I want to say it went 12 days and I never took it. I mean, I did not take it off during that whole time. And I did, you know, like I kept doing the stress test and all this other shit and I mean, that's impressive for what it is. So if you are looking for a pretty good fitness tracker, a great notification center, uh, and you know, something that's kind of cool to be able to remotely control your music more, uh, this is a winner ultimately, but also keep in mind, it's not going to connect to your Android go phone, <laughs> but it will connect to your normal Android phone. And it will also connect to, uh, you know, to, to iOS. It works in iOS. Now that used to be a concern is that Apple was only going to allow smart devices, uh, of their own design. Uh, that is no longer true. And you know, the, the me fit app and on iOS as well as on Android, I mean, are basically at parity. The only weird thing is, is that the me fit app, it seems, on iOS does not let you control all of the notifications that you can possibly get. It allowed me to get telegram and outlook, which those are really the only two things that, that mattered to me. Um, but on Android, you have a lot more control over what apps can send notifications. Uh, so th there is that difference, but then maybe there was something I did, uh, in order of operations of install on an iOS device. That's entirely possible, even though I am up to iOS 14.0.0 one. Uh, so that, that, that's the latest just as of a, a couple days ago, which fixed, uh, some Bluetooth issues and I think email reading issues, but anyway, regardless, um, yeah, I mean, for, for what you want, like I recommend it. 
And, you know, if you can go as far as I would love to go, you know, to where you're not even like looking at screens anymore and you're just getting those important notifications, you know, on, on your, on your wrist and you know, whether or not you need to respond to it. I mean, I, I think that's great. You know, Grant, it doesn't have a speaker on it. It responds of course with, you know, by vibrating. Right. And one could have the concern around a certain Pavlovian dog response, perhaps, or we could just say Pavlovian, a Pavlovian response, you know, developing over that. But you know, ultimately the reason you want to do that is because you don't actually need to get a lot of notifications in the first place. So it'd be your very rare occurrence on its own. So yeah, I can recommend the Mi Band 5, but I recommend doing so without using the Mi Fit app and killing all the fitness features of it. Um, and just using it for those notifications. Um, it can work, you know, it works very well as far as that goes. But, uh, the Android go Android 10 go the Nokia 1.3 phone that uses it. It's a no-go. <laughs> anyway. We've got more products to review in HackSec. I'll be right back with more Sovereignty. from 20th Century Fox. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. Now, I am trying. At, all right, one thing I'm going to try. I'm going to try and not snap. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep cool during this segment. But what I'm also trying is I'm trying to understand who thought, and we're not going to get to it at first, but who thought at least one of these products that Amazon uh, revealed during their fall hardware event, which just happened last week. I, who thought this was a good idea? And you'll know which one I'm talking about. And if you follow me on Twitter, the day that the event happened, I already shared you on it. And well, anyway, you know my reaction. So I'm going to pull up a bunch of stuff from The Verge here. Okay, there's a ton of links. Um, I put one main link that covers all of the releases. We don't have to cover all the releases, right? Like, okay, fine. There's a new, uh, a new echo and it's spherical instead of cylindrical. Okay. Um, there's a new echo dot. There's an echo dot. Now that has a clock on it. There's a new echo show, right? Which is the one that has a screen on it and everything. Um, we are prop during gaming grid. We'll talk a little bit about, uh, Luna, which is their cloud gaming service designed to obviously compete with, you know, game pass slash X cloud, as well as Google Stadia. We'll talk about that there. Uh, there's a new Fire Stick. Okay. Um, new Eros. I mean, like there, there's a, they released a bunch of new products and largely they're updates. There wasn't necessarily anything new, save one. And I'm also surprised they didn't talk about the Halo, 
which we discussed, which is their fitness tracker. Okay. We talked about that. And, and if you want to know reasons to not wear a fitness tracker, I mean, the halo had a very specific reason to not wear one because it was, well, that had to do with, uh, how it, how it read your voice. Talk about stress tracking, but anyway, go listen to was, I think, uh, angels don't wear this halo was the name of the episode. Just a couple episodes ago. Go listen to that. If you want to hear about the Amazon halo, um, they also announced, and this is not a huge deal, but somewhat interesting. They announced what they call guard plus, which uh, echo or Amazon guard or Amazon echo guard, whatever you want to call it has been a feature that was initially for free. If you owned an echo where it would listen for a loud noise, like breaking glass or something like this. And it would alert you in the, you know, uh, Alexa app on your smartphone. If that happened, say while you were away from home or something along those lines. Well, now they're starting a subscription service called guard plus, and it's going to be $5 a month, or I think it's $49 a year where now it will also in these features, again, there's really no good reason why these features can't be free, but regardless, these features will, they will contact emergency services on your behalf. And there is apparently a team of trained agents ready to handle the situation. Um, but also, you know, it will play a warning sound to potentially, you know, deter intruders and everything. And Hey, playing a loud noise out of nowhere when a loud noise gets heard that that's a fine and dandy, you know, uh, uh like that, that's something that works, right? I'm not going to deny that that works, but also you're basically telling your echo to be listening at all times, which it's likely doing anyway, but, and we've already talked about this. <laughs> before you say, oh, but I put on, I put on Wireshark and no, it's not. We've talked about this, the hows and whys. Okay. Got to go back to some episodes about it though. Anyway, uh, guard plus, I, I don't really, I don't know. I, I don't see the, 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 the point, but I can imagine that people will jump on this, but that's not even the, you know, the biggest deal, uh, in all of this. So you have all of those things, but the real big deal that, everybody's basically talking about. And I was impressed to say the least that the response was largely negative is what's called the always home cam. Now this would work very well with guard plus what it is. And I am not shitting you. It is a drone developed by ring, which of course is owned by Amazon has been for years now. That is a flying security camera designed to fly around your house. This is not something for outside those days where ring was saying, Oh, you know, yeah, we're only looking outside. We're not looking in your home. That's why, you know, you can buy the video doorbell and blah, 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 because don't worry. We're not looking inside your house. We're only looking outside. And I had so many people tell me, yeah, I, I, I trust ring because it's not looking in my house. Well, now ring has no problem looking in your house. but it is literally a flying drone with a camera roaming around your house and a little cubicle thing, like literally in a cube and it lifts off from it, from the station and, and goes up. And, uh, there are going to be, I'm sure a lot more details around this thing because uh, I don't think they went into a whole ton of specifics as to how long it can really fly for. Of course, it's dock is also its charging station. It's not coming out until 2021. The, uh, retail price 250, right. Um, and 
I get it. I understand where ring would think that this, you know, how they feel they could pitch this and sell this to people basically saying that, and it has been happening where ring has made a business for years now. And of course we've talked about it, the very creepy moments where people were looking through a ring camera set up in a bedroom and started talking to the woman laying down in her bedroom. And it was a, it was a, you know, a malicious actor. It was not like her boyfriend being kinky or something or girlfriend. Uh, this is to, you know, I, I imagine ring might be telling themselves someone might've, you know, bought the idea that, well, you know, maybe the reason everybody doesn't have cameras in their houses is because it's just, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass to set up the internal cameras. So if we could just give them a little drone that will, you know, just fly around whenever needed to check on things and blah, 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 no installation necessary, then more people will let us look into their homes. Let me say that last line again, because apparently nobody at ring got that part of it. Maybe more people will let us as in ring, as in Amazon, as in two companies, one company really that will gladly hand over video footage at the drop of a fucking hat to any authoritarian organization that wants it. Police, military, government, ultimately across the board. We know that we have the cases. Maybe the reason people won't let us, again, that us encompasses a lot of people, is because it's just too much of a pain in the ass to install security cameras. So let's give them a little flying drone. I want to read uh, from, this is by uh, Dieter Bonn uh, in The Verge. I want to read some of his write-up on this. And here we go. Uh, actually, before I get to that, Joanna Stern, who of course uh, writes for WSJ, she's um, a columnist there. Her, her response on Twitter was right on. It just is, this is it. Uh, that's the tweet. Uh, Ring just announced a security drone for, in all caps, inside your home. Yes, it flies around your house recording things, period, in, period, your, period, home, period. Frankly, that's all that needs to be said. Joanna Stern was right on the money. How does that not bug people out? Well, fortunately, like I said, largely people did get bugged out by this. So here we go from, from Dieter Bonn. Uh, the Ring drone is just the latest Amazon privacy puzzle box. Uh, and here, let me read the subheader. This is great. Amazon says, well, what does Amazon say? Amazon says you should worry more about your phone cameras than it's ring drone. No shit. <laughs> really? You think so? I, oh, I love it. 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 When the tech giants come out and basically call bullshit on their own shit, like, like the, the they admit to you the problems, you know, for years on this show, it had to be me. And, and, you know, you didn't give people saying, Oh, I want Stallion to speculate Oh, Oh, they, they're not doing that. Oh, come on. They were, they're not tracking you. Oh, they're not using their smart, the, their, your smartphone camera against you. Oh, they're not doing this, blah, blah, blah. And then every single time, or even when the echo first came out, it's like, uh, what, what, who's it? The, what, the VP of a product was it at Google? 
who talked about the Google Home as well as Alexa. And he said, and what was this, a year and a half ago or so? He says, yeah, you know, you should probably tell people when you have one of those devices in your house and it's activated. Or, you know, he didn't even talk about the activated part. He just says, if you have one of those in your house, to be to be polite, you should probably tell people because there's very real privacy concerns with that. Fucking an exec at Google told you that. And now you got Amazon coming out. We'll talk about the Ring drone. But now you got Amazon coming out. You should actually be far more concerned about the cameras on your smartphone. Oh, but I'm a fucking weirdo for putting tape over my smartphone cameras. What? No, you've got execs at Amazon telling you you should be doing that. All the things that I get told, I said it earlier, only the paranoid survive. All the things that I get told, oh, that's crazy, Stallion. Oh, that's going too far. Oh, they're not going to do that. Oh, that's not a good idea. The company, the companies themselves are telling you this. I already failed because I got hot. I got hot. I got heated. <laughs> and I said I, I was going to try and be cool. It just blows my mind that I get told I'm crazy. And yet the execs for the tech giants themselves tell you, yes, or basically say that I'm right. The man of tomorrow is right every time. Reading on. What do you got for us, Dieter? Let's do it. Quote, I'd be more worried about the camera on your phone than I would be about a drone. End quote. Amazon devices SVP Dave Limp told me in an interview a few hours after yesterday's big Echo event. The drone in question is the Ring Always Home Cam, an autonomous indoor drone that can use a map of your home to independently fly around to check out strange noises or run a patrol when you're not home. The drone was just one of well over a dozen product announcements Amazon made yesterday, including a foot, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they go down the list. Box CEO, Box being, of course, cloud storage company. Uh, Box CEO Aaron Levy pretty much summed it up tweeting, quote, if 2020 wasn't already dystopian enough for you, Amazon just announced an indoor flying drone camera, end quote. The second most popular response is that this thing would absolute, get absolutely wrecked by an overeager cat or dog. I can tell you that my cat captain, mine and Ellen's cat captain, would destroy this fucking thing, and I would applaud as the poor boy does it. But continuing on. Great reason to have a cat or dog. To destroy these fucking drones that are flying around in the house, goddammit. Moving on. It was my first reaction too, and even now, when I look at a video of the drone floating out of its docked Roman empty house, I still feel unsettled. But I also feel unsettled by the idea of having a security camera connected to a cloud inside my house in the first place. In fact, I would argue that's worse. At least with this drone, you are very aware when it's recording because it's loudly making drone noises. Amazon hilariously calls this, quote, privacy you can hear, end quote. What the fuck? What kind of newspeak is that? Orwell couldn't come up with a catchphrase like that. Reading on. Hilarious, but also accurate. With a compromised indoor security camera, you'd never know somebody was looking in, and it's happened. While uh, with people experiencing strangers talking or taking over their cameras because they reused their password, or worse, because a Ring employee was looking at video they shouldn't have been. Remember I told you, who is this, us? This us includes a ring employee that was playing sliver, right? You ever see that movie from the nineties? Woo, that's hot. No, wait, 
<laughs> That's not hot. Reading on. <laughs> but he was playing Sliver and spying on people doing who knows what. But you're okay with that. Well, maybe you are. You know what? Hey, look, folks. If you're an exhibitionist and you're into this sort of thing, okay, fine. But then that's consensual. And I'm sorry, signing a terms of service or terms of agreement or whatever that 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 no one could possibly grasp half the legalese in it, that's not con- that's not consent. Fuck you. But the drone, reading on, creeped people out in ways the existing security cameras didn't, and I think it's because it moves without directly being controlled. Oh, that adds a level of agency and intentionality. A stationary camera sees what we pointed at. A drone could see anything in our house. Instead of rising from a plastic docking station, it might as well be rising straight out of the uncanny valley. Amazon is building a track record of products that make people do a double take when they think about how it might affect their privacy. The drone, the other ring cameras and features, the sidewalk mesh network, I'm glad they brought that up. I'm glad Dieter brought that up because I was going to. Because here's the rub. All of this, all of this could still with the, so we, we, we reviewed, we talked about, we did a whole, we did full coverage on the sidewalk mesh network. We, we talked about the, te- the technicals around it, everything on sovereign tech, uh, just in this past year. And this is an internet without, without the internet at large, right? It is a completely separate interconnected, uh, infrastructure protocol. Okay. So, and, 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 you know, and I dare argue it's, it, it's likely in the, it talk about terms of service, like that all of anything that ends up on sidewalk can be handed over to the authorities. But basically all of these devices that Amazon's setting up can communicate with sidewalk. And in fact, what was it? Was it 30 or no 300? All you needed was 300 effectively base stations or routers that operated sidewalk and you could cover the entire city of LA. It's only 300. A farm towns, less than a farm towns worth of routers could create an entire alternate internet where Amazon has access to all the data that goes on it to, to an entire city like LA. Sidewalk mesh network is an absolute key aspect to this and part of the problem. Uh, because what, you're going to run Wireshark on sidewalk? No, that's an entire interconnected infrastructure, wholly controlled by Amazon. You don't get to look at what sidewalks doing. Reading on, uh, the halo app that asks you to be scanned in your underpants. Uh, there's also, yes, that's part of that halo device that we talked about the, the wearable, uh, there's almost a a shamelessness to them. It's like Amazon has taken a dare to make the most unsettling consumer products. It could in fact, you know, bring up quick, bring up quick, the, the, the halo app, right. Which is supposed to help you check BMI and everything. Amazon's telling you, you should be more worried about your smartphone camera than our drone, but then they're also selling you the fucking product in the Halo fitness tracker that is going to take an ass ton of pictures of you, of your ass at that. See what I mean? They're calling themselves out. They're telling you, I mean, like we almost can't call them liars now because now they're being completely honest with you. Hey, we're fucking watching everything you do. Reading on 
There's also strange tension between products that genuinely feel creepy and the reality that Amazon is doing a lot of the right things when it comes to privacy. It has added two-factor authentication to ring cameras and will soon offer the option for end-to-end -end encryption for, for video. Boy, that should have been put in place if, in, like from the get-go, but reading on. So nobody but you could possibly access it. It's adding more ways to delete your data by talking to Alexa, and it has privacy control dashboard that is quite good. I'm no Amazon apologist, though. Even though I don't think the drone is nearly as problematic as the rest of the internet seems to, I still have a boatload of worries about other products from Amazon. Ring has uh, towed and sometimes crossed the line of being too cozy with law enforcement, which was, if you saw my tweet, that's exactly what I said is how they absolutely are cozy with law enforcement. We'll hand over that data, no problem. And reading on, and I worry about its effects on neighborhood cultures in general. Then there's Sidewalk. It's Amazon's new mesh network that allows its devices and third-party devices to see and communicate with each other at medium distances, say less than half a mile. As with trackers like Tile, which will soon work with Sidewalk, devices can securely communicate their location through the mesh network, and Sidewalk can also be used for simple commands for IoT devices like checking to see if, the ma if your mailbox is open. Sidewalk isn't live yet, but it was mentioned as a key spec in many of the products Amazon announced yesterday. That means as people buy these products, Amazon's sidewalk network will soon begin blanketing the cities. It won't take very many of them either, as Amazon noted last year. I told you about that, how only 300, he doesn't give the exact numbers here, but basically 300 sidewalk uh, 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 routers, effectively, okay, would, would cover, you know, that entire area of LA. Uh, continuing on, I've written up about my concerns with Sidewalk in the past, and I'm going to link to this story because Dieter is bringing up a lot of great stuff, stuff that I wanted to bring up initially, but then even some things that I didn't necessarily think about. Um, yeah, so he brought up his concerns with Sidewalk in the past. As with the drone, I instinctively recoil at the idea of an unregulated wireless mesh network that can locate gadgets being built simply because people want an Echo or a Ring doorbell. But again, as with the drone, Amazon has privacy-focused answers for each of the most obvious concerns I could think of. It spent the past year stress testing its security to harden against hackers who might want to use it to reveal their lo uh, your location. There are multiple layers of encryption and limits on bandwidth usage to prevent malfeasance. It's opened up uh, an API for developers and gotten Tile on board as a third-party vendor. Amazon says that any sidewalk gateway like an Echo will allow a customer to turn off sidewalk if they don't want to participate. But that, again, is a soft switch. It's something you're going to do in software, in an app. It is not something that's being, it's not a cutoff switch that's hardware, right? It's not a hard switch. Meaning law enforcement slash Amazon slash they're all the same thing, corporatism, can turn it on willy-nilly. Does this happen? Yes. We've had cases where Google, and when supposedly they said, oh, we only do, we only automatically turn stuff on or on around our campus, but then, oh, an update got pushed or a signal got pushed, I should say, by Google and all around the country, Bluetooth got turned on devices that had it off. That's the danger of a soft switch. So um, there's more to the story. You could keep reading on about it. He brings up about the Halo uh, fitness service and how, you know, putting this entire package together, it really turns into a very real privacy nightmare. Yes, that's exactly what I've been at least theorizing or reporting on long before anybody else bothered with, with Amazon. Uh, but now it's all coming to head. And it is amazing. I mean, I, I, I have to give Amazon, I guess, credit for having the balls to just put this stuff out there. You know, and yeah, like they, they shocked, look, they changed things when the Echo came out, right? Because they leapfrogged entire categories. They wanted to put out a phone 
the phone failed, right? The fire phone just failed. And so they just skipped the phone entirely and, you know, came out with the echo and it became wildly popular beyond my belief, frankly, but it did. And they're basically just constantly trying, I think, to do that. They're trying to leapfrog and release things that no other company even thinks about, right? Like Apple's not coming out with a flying uh, drone. Of course, maybe the people at Apple, you know, have some degree of sense to say, no, people aren't going to do that. Maybe the same is true at Google. I don't know. But there's a weird, I mean, the problems here are, are just obvious. You don't actually totally control this device, right? Like you don't fly it. You don't have, cause that, that's what some people were saying is that, well, this could be interesting because, uh, you know, you could have it go spy down in the basement if there's some noise down there. Yeah. But you don't actually like really control it in that way to where it really, you know, could do that for you, you know? And also fucking get, get some guts, but <laughs> God damn it. I mean, that, that's a whole other side subject because this feels like just another thing to keep you locked away in your room. So you never have to step outside. But the, the, again, many of the issues are absolutely obvious with this. And I'm trying to keep from, from just like lashing out about it because it, it's unbelievable that anybody thinks that this is a good idea, that anybody's going to want this. And, you know, I kind of get it because, and here's the sad part, especially right now. I mean, is this is, so understand this, this is a product that Amazon's probably been developing at Amazon, you know, uh, uh, one, th one, two, three, or one, three, six, whatever their lab is, their lab's name is there. It's their version of Google X. They've probably been working on this with ring, which is them, uh, you know, their own acquisition. They've been probably working on this for a few years now. They've basically, I'm sure they've been working on how do we create, like they want to create the smart home with Alexa being the center of that. And so they have been developing products, you know, that, 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 that play off of this. Now, I mean, this looks as far as, you know, in a science fiction sense, I mean, frankly, in Babylon five, you had like those flying recorders that journalists use. It looks very much like that. So it's not like they necessarily had an original idea. Science fiction's already been on board with this, just like it was with the echo, regardless it is, it does appear to be a leap in the market category as far as security goes. Okay. Um, but I'm sure this idea has been around for a while. Now that COVID basically hit, I think Amazon feels like, okay, we're in a new normal, like everybody says, and all bets are off. Let's try re releasing some of our most draconian idiotic shit that we can. Because right now everybody's just holed up in their home. Their homes are their world basically. And so, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I can imagine there's somebody at Amazon who's thinking it's like, yeah, this is like having your own little police force, your own little detective force or something like that, you know? And, and so they're taking advantage of incredibly high stress levels. They're taking advantage of an election year where people are walking around in absolute fear, rightly or wrongly. It's not like you have any good choices as far as politicians go. Of course, they're politicians. There's never a good choice. But they're really taking advantage of people's mental states right now, in my opinion, to see if this thing could actually even fucking sell. But it speaks to a much larger problem, I think. 
there's the privacy issues. Sure. Those are easy to, to bring up and to talk about and nothing new for sovereign tech. You knew exactly how I felt about this. I think people have already been sharing this story in the telegram group. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise. Is it adding on to the surveillance society that we live in? Absolutely. All of those things are true. We can go, you know, gaga nuts about all that. And, and it, it's the truth. I think it's worth talking about the fact that, that Amazon is basically admitting that your smartphone is a privacy nightmare, which it is. Okay. Part of the reason I'm not a big fan, but the real, I, I think there's more of a psychological issue here that I am very concerned about. And it's really come to head even more for a lot of people consciously or unconsciously during COVID-19 during 2020. We are, I don't think this is unfair to say, Humanity, if we were to buy into the notion that humanity is a species and thus has some, you know, certain shared genetic traits, we are a nomadic species by nature. Um, that's not new information by any means. We are. I have been listening, and not that that point came up in this. Um, I was actually listening to a a, a great cor- part of the Great Courses series um, of All Ironies on Audible. Again, I've brought it up many times. I've had an Audible account before Amazon owned them. Uh, believe me, I do not like that they own them. But I was listening to uh, one of the Great Courses, and it's the 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 Barbarian Empires of the Steppes. Basically, it's talking about how do how did we get to Genghis Khan, right? And I'm not going to say it's a very good lecture as far as like great, the great courses go. It's not bad, but it's also not like really great. Um, I'm not unfamiliar with these barbarian empires uh, by any means. So I feel like there's a lot of things that were skipped and overlooked and not enough uh, diving into certain aspects of what, you know, allowed half of these things to be, but a point that does get accurately made by the uh, lecturer in that is how Part of the reason that Genghis Khan and really the nomadic people of the steppes were able to create massive empires, were able to constantly thwart, say, you know, the Song Dynasty, you know, China, uh, or to, you know, convince the Turks, you know, to come on their side or whatever, which I mean, granted, the Turks were also, you know, fairly nomadic, um, you know, how they were able to avoid resting, uh, uh, falling under the thumb of the Byzantine Empire or even the, you know, the Bishop of Rome or whatever was because they were not centralized. They were nomadic. You can't control. In fact, they could keep beating the other peoples around because they were very settled. And, but because they were always on the move, I mean, it gave them an advantage as nomads. Okay. And because everything they owned, everything could be packed up fairly quickly and you could move on to greener pastures as needed. That was a powerful advantage in the early parts of, well, shall we say the common era? And of course it was, you know, a tremendous advantage BCE as well. We are inherently, a no, like I say, a nomadic uh, a species like that. That's just, that's, that's how we came into being. 
And even though, because again, I mean, they even call it right. The barbarian Empire. they're considered barbarians because, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're not much, they're not so civilized, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, that of course that argument's horseshit. You can be nomadic and still be incredibly civilized, right? And one only need look at digital nomads to make, today to know that, not to say that they're anything relevant to the Mongolian, uh, you know, empire. But I say all this, my point here, and I do have a point is that we have become enslaved to our homes. Yes, we've become, you know, uh, uh, you could argue, you know, serfs and vassals and whatever else to, you know, the people in Washington and blah, blah, blah. We can go, you know, the neo-feudal lords and all. We could certainly, you know, use a lot of those very flowery terms and everything. But ultimately, we're able to be, we accept a lot of uh, uh, treading, shall we say, on our varying human liberties, like privacy, among other things. We accept them. Because if we don't, we lose a lot of our creature comforts. And I'm not saying that you choosing creature comforts over, say, freedom or, you know, pick your term, is inherently a bad thing because you can make these choices. But the real problem is that so few are even aware. Too many homes in my opinion, have effectively, they're they're not places that you live. They are places where you store things. They are places where you pretend that you have collected so much in your life. And hey, look, I have starships lining the studio. I mean, like I I have things, I understand. Okay, but I also keep my relationship with them in, in check. And I'm not bringing up any kind of Buddhist horseshit here too. I am not a fan of Buddhism by any stretch of the imagination. But The point I'm bringing to you is that I think you need to check your relationship with your living space, with your life. If you think for even a nanosecond that you need a flying drone with a camera that ultimately connects to the government at the end of the day in your house. What is going on? What is in your house that is so goddamn important that you feel it necessary to empower authoritarian structures? Your home is not supposed to be just the place where you store things. It's not supposed to be your 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 temple of materialism. It's not supposed to be your temple of objects that somehow make you feel like you did something in life. Your home is where you're supposed to enjoy your loved ones, get some rest, fuck until you can't think anymore, whatever. Your home is a place to rest, recuperate, and perhaps have some other experiences. It is not a castle of things. It is not a fortress of things, but because it's become for so many a fortress of things, I bet there's people who somehow think that this is a good fucking idea or the people who, I mean, IOT in general, basically that entire category speaks to this problem that people's homes have become fortresses of things instead of a place to live because everybody's, I mean, it's so funny. You know, as, as some people have become more affluent or whatever, they start to travel more, right? They're, 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 they're appealing to their nomadic nature. 
and they're wanting to see the world a fine and dandy thing. Are there people that are homebodies, by the way? Yes, of course there are, you know, but by, by some degree of nature, I mean, that kind of speaks to the problem of even talking about humanity as a species because we're so individualistic, but ultimately, you know, and then there's the ineffable, but that again, that's getting into wild philosophical conversations that we don't have to, at least at this stage. But what do these people do? You know, now that they have the freedom and the money or whatever, but ultimately that comes down to the freedom, the freedom to travel. Well, they, they turn their own homes into, I mean, basically their, their homes have surveillance in them that the KGB only wished they had 40 years ago. That they couldn't even dream up. And they're just constantly looking at their smartphone. Oh, is everything all right at home? You know what I mean? I mean, it's baby monitors were one thing. This is a whole other animal. Now, I mean, that's one thing. Fine. Okay. You want to make sure your baby's okay. Well, that makes fucking sense. It's a human life. Of course you want to make sure it's okay. No, now you're just trying to watch your shit. And you've become, I don't mean to sound all Fight Club or Tyler Durden about this, but you've become a slave to your shit. The things you own are now owning you. To the point that you're willing to hash out $250 and let Amazon fucking creepily spy in your goddamn home. Baby, where's your head at? That's, that's where I'm far more worried. And in fact, ironically, it's Amazon once again admitting to the real problems because they're, they're basically coming out and telling you, you know, by even releasing this product, like, this is how we keep you under our thumb is that you feel like what's important is the shit under your roof instead of your own goddamn life and liberty. They're being perfectly honest. I'm not going to applaud them for it because people can be honest with you and you can still get angry about it. But not enough people think about that. I mean, do you know the reason I think? that there aren't bombs dropping. I mean, there are bombs dropping constantly around the world, but in in other places, but in more of those, uh, you know, places where people buy Android go phones, I guess, Uh, (laughs) right. Developing countries. You know why bombs aren't constantly dropping all over the world? You know why there aren't constant wars and all this? It's not that humanity has changed. Humanity hasn't changed. Are you kidding me? I mean, I I was just here in at ice planet zero in New Hampshire, just, uh, just this past Sunday, I was watching, I mean, frankly, they look like the fucking rejects from the Libyan uh, Toyota war. You know, they're, they're just, <laughs> you got these, these gang members just driving by and they're all honking. Uh, I mean, if anybody like, like gave them the finger or probably even like raised some kind of sign against them that said, you know, fuck Trump or something like that, they probably would have gotten out of their cars and started pounding on people. I mean, they're annoying as fuck. People are just trying to fucking relax on a Sunday and they're driving around honking their goddamn horns like a bunch of goddamn morons. Okay. Saying goddamn way too much in this episode, but it doesn't matter. Slap nuts. We're going with it. And the only reason that those people aren't necessarily getting violent, let me tell you why it's because of Netflix. No, I'm not kidding. It's because of Netflix. Because dropping by everything is so all the things that you have been uh, 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 trained to enjoy in life or told is important. 
be it your fortress of things or your connection to the latest comedy special, which is piss poor and, you know, George Carlin would wipe the floor with, um, or, you know, that you've got to watch the latest episode of, of Game of Thrones or, or whatever. Thank God that's over. Uh, but whatever. If you dropped a bomb, you'd lose access, right? Everything's so interconnected now. That's why people do, but that, but just because it's all interconnected and maybe, you know, such violent acts, bombs aren't dropping anymore. doesn't necessarily mean it's inherently good. Yes. It's inherently good. The bombs aren't dropping, but that doesn't mean that the reason that they are is inherently good itself. You are not realizing the nature of the infrastructure in cage that you are sitting in right now. You think it's extreme that I don't want to look at screens anymore. Or are you kidding? That's where we're at. You don't care. You don't care if a ring employee sees you fucking. You don't care if a ring employee, I don't know, is who, who fuck, who knows what they're doing. Let, let them control the damn drone. Let them, uh, let them report whatever. Let them watch whatever. Let them do this, blah, blah, blah. I thought you cared. I, I guess you don't. As long as your things are safe, you don't care. As long as I have access to Netflix, go ahead and shit on me. I don't care. Stallion, what's the answer? What do we do? The answer is reconsider your priorities. Reconsider what actually matters to you in life. Reconsider what the fuck you're doing in your life. Reconsider how do we allow things that doesn't even, you know, I mentioned Orwell earlier, shit that, doesn't even show up in Orwell's work. That's, that's far worse. How did you let that become a consumer product? There's answers, but you got to have time to explore them. Hopefully you can keep your attention long enough to actually think about it by not staring at some fucking screen. I'll be right back with some more sovereignty. Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made the show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at cash.app and use the money tag SovereignTech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, let's get back to the show. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver.
And here is your host, Brian Sodrum. Folks, you know, look, in case you're confusing me, do I have a problem with people owning things? No, I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm not a communist, not even close. <laughs> all right. Uh, in fact, I, I, I shared a book in the Telegram group, uh, which is a great critique of anarcho-communism. Um, that, that's not me. Okay. But, you know, having concerns around everybody just having their, their, their palace of possessions. Okay. And, you know, the mindset around that does not equate to somebody saying you can't own shit. That that's fucking outrageous. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, we're going to talk about the gaming grid here. I mean, I can look to my right. I've got gaming consoles, all kinds, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty, I have stuff. All right. I'm not, not criticizing people for that. I am asking you though, to be critical of how you're living, of how did we get here? So moving on, I mean, quick, look, and this is a point I've brought up many times. You know, a lot of this stuff are, these are things that are in science fiction and we see them in science fiction or we've seen them over the decades in science fiction. And we're like, oh, that's so cool. I'd love to have that. Right. And certainly Silicon Valley takes advantage of that nostalgia and that bit of marketing. Okay. Um, I don't think it's a surprise, you know, that Amazon is, you know, putting so much science fiction, say on Amazon prime and so on, because they're trying to quote unquote, build that future, blah, blah, blah. Here's the rub. Some of these ideas, like even a little flying drone, Hey, that could be pretty cool. I remember there was a show, uh, Viper. It was a really, really cool car show, uh, kind of like Knight Rider anyway, but it had a Dodge Viper instead of the Trans Am. Um, and in that like Viper, the car had a little drone that could come out, you know, and, and do like, you know, could look at the exterior and everything, but that drone just sent video footage and was controlled and operated by the car and just the car. It was not connected to the cloud. It was not connected to Amazon. It was not connected to the government. It was not, well, other than Viper being a quasi police program, but beyond that, you get my point. Okay. Is that sure. There are a lot of things that I see in science fiction that I'm like, Oh, that'd be cool. I'd love to have that. If it only connects to my local area network, not if it's controlled or sending data to quote unquote, the cloud, then it becomes a problem. And that's part of, you know, part of the major issue here. Hey, great. Again, this could be really cool to set up for, you know, for your own use, but that's not what it's, none of it's being sold for that. None of it's being used for that. So moving on, um, Amazon Luna, there's not a whole lot to talk about here. <laughs> there, there really isn't. Uh, but it is Amazon's uh, gaming game streaming competitor. Uh, I think it's interesting that they have delayed. I mean, look, you know, Amazon. All right, jokes aside about the Luna controller looking like uh, looking like the, the the Switch Pro controller. Yes, it does, and it's in, and it's purple. Woohoo! Okay. Um, we're just sadly we're not going to get any real innovation in control schemes at any point. Uh, as much as I I wish that that we could. Uh, Nintendo had certainly tried over the decades, but anyway, um, there's no real difference here between it and what like say Stadia and X cloud are doing. It's all the same stuff. Uh, we've known for years that Amazon has been developing its own games. These games continually get delayed. Uh, they clearly did not see the fire TV as a console. They're obviously very easily able to leverage AWS. 
uh, you know, to, to create a, well, as low a latency gaming experience as I imagine you could get via streaming. Um, but they have their own games and some of them are supposed to be real triple a titles. They're probably been holding them off. They've probably been holding them off because they've been planning on having this streaming gaming service, uh, like stadia, which has direct access to YouTube. Luna has direct access to, uh, to Twitch, which is Amazon owned. Um, bottom line, do I think that this is going to work? I mean, the competition in the space, particularly between Microsoft, I don't really see Apple as a competitor in this space, but particularly between uh, Microsoft and Google and Amazon. Yeah. You know, you could you can make the argument that the consumer wins when there's competition in a market, but this, this will certainly help mature this technology. But again, this is where gaming is kind of breaking off. Okay. Like, like you're, you're, you're getting up, there's a breaking off point in gaming where you have people who are more retro gamers. And then you have people who are going into this whole streaming future. And this is just adding in more in that. And basically I think Amazon feels like they have to do this. Owning Twitch is not enough. They have to be the platform for games uh, because gaming is one of those verticals, as it were, that, you know, just, just inf- seems to infinitely scale, right? Because there's so many different tastes and, and there's still so many things to do within gaming itself. There's so many new developments because it's ultimately art and art has, I mean, depending, okay, there's some aspects to art that seem to have an upper limit, but art seems to have no upper limit. So much like everybody has to have a web browser, right? Like we were talking about earlier with Microsoft and edge, like you just, you can't not make a web browser if you want to be a tech giant more or less. Same is true. If you want to be a tech giant, you can't not have some kind of gaming platform. And so Amazon basically has to do this. Now they are making it interesting with like having channels, which are based around more gaming interests and as compared to like having different tiers like stadia offers, that's kind of interesting, but ultimately, yeah, these people are just going to compete themselves into oblivion, much like what's happening between CBS all access, Netflix, and, you know, and and everybody and Hulu and everybody else. Okay. To where, you know, they're, they're just, they're going to compete into meaninglessness. Um, And really the company that just keeps trying to innovate in the space is the one that's going to stand tall. Amazon's not innovating here at all. What's the company that's continually innovating in this space? Nintendo. So there's your winner. (laughs) Ultimately, not that they're even competing really in this area or in this arena of, of game. Yes, they have, you know, switch online, but that's somewhat of a different animal and relies upon a nostalgia factor as well as a retro catalog that largely these other services do not. So very different animal as far as that goes. Um, anyway, so speaking of this, and, 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 and it's a good time to bring in this conversation. And speaking of CBS All Access, actually, I watched a documentary recently, which is actually based on a book, a book that's not bad. Um, I've talked about it before by Blake J. Harris, a guy I'm not the biggest fan of, um, but whatever, uh, that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't really matter, you know, but anyway, it's the documentary is called console wars and it's all about Sega versus Nintendo in the nineties. This is a very new documentary. It's just come out just in 2020. 
Um, I also did happen to catch the, uh, was it bedrooms to billions, the PlayStation saga or whatever. Uh, I might review that at a later date. That's, that's certainly an interesting thing to talk about. And certainly console, the console wars documentary does touch on the PlayStation a little bit. Um, but I want to review this here. So we're going to end off the show with something that's, you know, a little more interesting, not something that I need to yell about. <laughs> uh, but I actually think it's, I'll say it out front. I think it's a shitty documentary. Um, it's a documentary that large, I mean, I love Sega. I love the Sega Saturn. It feels like the, the real point of the documentary is to talk about like why the Sega Saturn didn't really win, why Sega ultimately failed. And that's certainly an interesting story to tell, but I, it felt like very cheerleadery for, for, for Sega. I don't even know what, what term to use. It almost felt like a Sega puff piece. Again, I love Sega. I really do. And I think the Saturn ultimately what, what we ended up with is great. Is it as good as it could have been? No, clearly. And, and you can see that within console wars where they talk about how, well, actually, you know, Sega was talking to Silicon graphics before they became, uh, you know, the, the premier uh, technology underneath the Nintendo 64. Um, that there were a bunch of options that basically Sega out of Japan told, you know, Sega of America, no, you can't do that. Where if they had taken it, things could look very different now in the gaming industry where Sega could probably still be making consoles and so on. Um, all of that. And, and, and I mean, people have heard the, the, the shit around Sega versus Nintendo, especially during the super Nintendo versus the Genesis uh, era. You know, I mean, you've heard that a million times. If you're somebody that's like not familiar with that story, I can imagine where console wars would be very interesting to you because it does do a pretty good job of laying down at least some of the facts. Um, and it hits at something, but it doesn't take it all the way. And again, it, it really felt like, like they were, look, Nintendo did some, some really heavy handed tyrannical, I mean, you could not tyrannical as in, I mean, yes, well, I, ultimately they did appeal to lawyers. So you could say they brought down the gun, uh, well, let's say draconian. Let's use that word again. I already used it once in the show, but let's use it again. They did some draconian shit. I'm not going to say that they, that they didn't at all. Okay. Um, but part of the problem with this documentary is it's very America centric. It did not at all concentrate on what was happening in the gaming industry in Japan which colors, I think, a lot of why Sega of Japan would say no to some of the things that Sega of America wanted to do. To understand, like, th they made it sound like Nintendo was just this nonstop dominant force from the years 85 to 95. That, that's basically how they lay this out. When that's not true, in Japan, I mean... You know, you had, I mean, it wasn't called the TurboGrafx-16 over there, but you had the PC Engine, you had other things. You had real competitors for the Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan. And the only reason that Nintendo started making a sequel console, a Super Nintendo, was because they were feeling the lack of market dominance in Japan. 
But if you watch this documentary, you'd make it, it makes it sound like, oh, no, Nintendo was always fucking dominating there. You know, they, nobody was beating them, blah, blah, blah. I mean, in America, sure, maybe, but you know, that just was not true in Japan. It was an incredibly different story over there. And so I was very annoyed by that perspective because it's just, frankly, in that sense, while there are some facts that they lay out very well, in that sense, it's incredibly dishonest as to why Nintendo was doing what they were doing and also why Sega felt differently and was making the decisions that they did, particularly with the Saturn and so on. So in that sense, I think it's almost worthless. Yes, there are accurate facts that get laid out, but like a lot of the overall or the overview of why certain, you know, attitudes were had and things were being done are almost lies. I feel like in this documentary, so it sucks for that, but here's something that it does bring up accurately that I always kind of realized, but I never, it never really was, was brought to fore for me. It was never brought to words that I think is really, really key and actually speaks to either the success or failure of a lot of these new like streaming gaming platforms. And maybe even points that Amazon might just end up winning this thing. But, you know, because like I mentioned, the aforementioned uh, exclusives that they're going to have made by their own, uh, game studios, but regardless, so the real winner here, here's something that, that low key. And I, and I actually, I highly doubt they even realized, like, I, I don't think this, this documentary realizes what they're laying out and what they're saying, but it's the truth. The real winner of the nineties was neither Nintendo nor Sega. The real winner was mortal Kombat. Now allow me to explain. I am a massive Mortal Kombat fan. Uh, that's not news. I've talked about that many times on the show. Um, love that. One of my top game franchises. Absolutely. Like easily in the top three. Um, as as somebody who's going to make the actually very good Mortal Kombat movie, the original, not, 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 not the sequel, not an Annihilation. That's horrible. <laughs> but, uh, but the first one um, was tremendous. But the guy who was basically making that movie deal happen his description of Mortal Kombat, I think, is dead on. It's Enter the Dragon meets Star Wars. Yes, that's Mortal Kombat. That's why it's so fucking great. So the documentary talks about how what a big deal it was that both the Super Nintendo and Genesis both got Mortal Kombat and how the Genesis really got a leg up because it had all the gore and everything, even though it didn't look as good as the Super Nintendo version and it wasn't as powerful. It, it got the attitude, the spirit, shall we say, of Mortal Kombat better than the super Nintendo did. But the fact that there was that, I mean, mortal Kombat day, you know, when the, when the game was released and it was released on both systems, that was pun intended, a game changing moment in the industry that did not happen before. Okay. Not really. I mean, it, it, those sorts of things kind of happened in Japan where you'd have, you know, mul- games get released on multiple platforms, but in America, you know, that, that wasn't so much of a thing. So when Mortal Kombat dropped on both consoles, uh, it actually, like, it basically pushed both consoles and forced both consoles, even though Genesis was already playing up a more mature attitude, forced both consoles and gaming in general to grow up. And it really did. It's the game that did that. Uh, And when you hear, so if you want to watch this, go ahead, but pay special attention to the Mortal Kombat segment of the documentary. Because that tells the real story is that it's never the hardware. The hardware is frankly inconsequential. 
at the end of the day. Um, in fact, really, I think that can be proven with Sony because like the PS3 almost broke the company because they put so much, they banked so hard on the fucking hardware. They thought that that really, really mattered. doesn't matter. What matters is, do you have the, the great game, the game that no matter where it sits, what it's being played on, that it is just, it is the dominant force, right? And also that that game cannot be an exclusive. It has to be cross-platform. Okay. And it has to be what everybody talks about. And ultimately like that's really, you know, we talk about, I mean, everybody talks about like, how is Nintendo still going? Why is Mario still a big deal? You know, I mean, all these different elements that people just can't seem to understand when, Oh, there have been games that have surpassed things that Mario has done. Why is Mario still a big deal? Because again, even the Nintendo platform, the hardware does not matter. It's the franchise. It's the character, the story, whatever that really matters. And you think you might be saying, well, this is obvious. Yeah, but it's not. (laughs) Okay. You don't realize that what made gaming the dominant force that it became in the nineties was not Nintendo or Genesis. It was Mortal Kombat. And right now, I very much feel like we don't have anything like that. There's things that could be, but they're like exclusives behind a certain console and consoles are so fucking expensive today. Not everybody can jump on them, right? And none of these streaming services are going to get the Final Fantasy VII remake or they're not going to get, I don't know, pick your poison. You know, they're not going to get, uh, I don't know, uh, they're not going to get Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity or Breath of the Wild 2 or, I I don't know, take your pick, right? So now Nintendo's pretty smart in taking advantage of a lot of this by, and the price wars are interesting to talk about in the 90s as well, but Nintendo keeps their, you know, the, the, basically the cost of their consoles at a much lower level at an entry level to where again, the hardware almost doesn't matter. In fact, this has been kind of proven. This point has been proven with uh, the new, the new Xbox, right? The latest Xbox coming out. What is the, the, the one terabyte hard drive, the official one terabyte hard drive option for it, expansion option for it is costs as much as a Nintendo switch, like a switch Lite, And that's why, for Nintendo, you know, they can make breath of the wild and everybody will still play it because their hardware is cheap enough to where it does make sense to buy their hardware, to play that one great game. But the great game is ultimately what really matters. You know, I mean, Minecraft is probably proof of this, but you've got to be of a certain mind, I think to, to, to want to enjoy that. Um, yeah, it, it was really revelatory. And, and, and I, again, they, they spend some time talking about mortal Kombat, but they never really, bring it to head that actually the console wars are ultimately bullshit because neither of the consoles actually really won up the other. What really won was mortal Kombat. And in many ways, I still think that's, that's not that mortal Kombat is necessarily the dominant player anymore, but you know, it, it's still the point that the franchise that a franchise is what is really dominant, I think is still true. And I don't think a lot of game developers realize that, or at the very least, like the company, I think that could, that could potentially pull off what I'm talking about here more so than even Nintendo with Mario would actually be something that rare comes out with, which is owned by Microsoft. Microsoft 
could pull this off. It would almost be, you know, we talked last week about how they're, they, they're, they're probably going to make some Bethesda games or franchises console exclusives and that that could be a win for them. Yeah. It can be a win for them overall in a console generation, but is it a win in the gaming industry overall? No, to have a win in the gaming industry overall, you have to have that one game that fucking everybody wants to play and that they're, you know, and they're just crazy about it, you know, and it creates the game. Isn't just great gameplay because you could argue that Mortal Kombat is fairly simplistic gameplay. And okay. You know, or that street fighter two is better. Okay. You know, you could make those kinds of arguments, but Mortal Kombat came with an attitude that spoke to everybody at the time in the nineties. And so your game has to deliver not necessarily innovative or interesting gameplay, but it has to deliver an attitude that speaks to such and so many people. And that's what actually wins in the gaming industry. And, but that's something, I mean, I, either people have missed the point, they don't realize it or whatever, or Ed Boone, frankly, is probably sitting so pretty. He's not worried about it. You know, they, like he can make Mortal Kombat the way he wants to make it. And he doesn't have to please anybody other than Mortal Kombat fans. They'll buy it. And there's plenty of them still because it just, you know, the, the franchise has engendered that kind of passion. It certainly has in me as well. Um, but that's what it's going to take for some company to really like, you know, break out and just be the big deal. But I don't know that anybody wants to do that. Uh, and I don't think, or I don't think anybody wants to admit to it because again, that's more of that. Oh, we can't hoard, you know, this talent anymore. We can't do this. We can't do you know, nobody's willing to have that incredible cross-platform experience. Not really. And you could say Fortnite is that, and maybe that's true. You know, maybe Fortnite has kind of pulled that off. Maybe some of these other games have kind of pulled that off, but it's, it's so fleeting and so cheating to the consumer with IEPs and loot crates and all this other stuff that it, it just, it can't stand. So it kind of hits that nit. It kind of hits that point that Mortal Kombat did in the nineties, but it doesn't have any staying power because it ultimately cheats the consumer. So anyway, it's the things not said in this documentary that are what are really, really interesting, but you kind of have to know about them or you have to realize them to really appreciate it. So ultimately, I mean, if I was to give this like a ranking, I'd give console wars, the documentary, I'd give it like a three, I, I, you know, maybe a four or a five, but only because of the Mortal Kombat segment. And again, they don't explicitly say just how powerful that was. They really don't. And they should have because it would have been a far more interesting documentary. Uh, in fact, a really great Mortal Kombat documentary. That's something we should So anyway, that's it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. I've been going on into overtime for far too long. We will wrap this one up. Uh, feel free to donate to the show. Of course, go to SovereignTech.com. Really honored by all of those that do. And please frequent our sponsors. And I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. <laughs>